This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive. time again it's time to go back to the grotto truth for our sixth the grotto truth, yes yep the grotto uh, truth uh yeah, and me with the acolytes yeah mm-hmm. uh, yep yeah mm-hmm. yep they're they have their acolyte robes on and yes. uh, i hope they're pretty excited for our sixth installment of the q a series uh in our in the grotto discord for anybody who doesn't know what the hell we're talking about um it's <laughs> what we call uh, discord yes, chat yes. yeah yeah real heads know but yeah that's yeah. uh that's what we're doing today yeah. so uh we got some got some good ones this time yeah. a little less mm-hmm. than usual i think we have eight yeah. questions to go through but yeah um mm-hmm. I think the some meaty topics, ones that yeah. mm-hmm. probably going to be spun off into episodes in the future. Yeah, but being that we have a tendency to go so long on these, it's a, a somewhat welcome reprieve to have fewer questions. But I mean, we always welcome, uh, you know, questions. Yeah, yeah. and uh, but, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for anybody that wants to know how it works, if you want to harass us, if you sign up for our Patreon, uh, the All War Frequency then you get access to the grotto discord we have a sub chat for questions and if you ask questions we will answer them in these episodes yeah and that's good if you want to harass us or if you just want to like nicely correspond with us and the nice yes. community that exists in the grotto uh, you know, <laughs> it's not they've, yeah, they've all uh, been pretty nice questions so far for harassment uh yeah no one no. has harassed <laughs> us yet and uh no frankly you know I, I would not necessarily encourage it i don't know well i don't know why you would want to harass us i think you know uh but uh, maybe you're, yes maybe you're lucian <laughs> greaves but yeah. maybe if even, you want to take your best you, shot even if you are Lucian Greaves, we'll answer your question if you post it in, in the grotto. But you gotta you gotta pony up. Yeah, you do. Um, um, okay, so let's uh, let's get started. I'll mm-hmm. read the first one. This is from our our boy Prenti Sound System, mm-hmm. and he asks: uh, Jin Zhang was touched on a bit in the victory episode, and I would love to hear the host take on the current day situation there with the Uyghurs. Which elements of the propaganda emanating from the two great empires do you believe, and which do you discount? Well, 
I kind of, like, don't think of myself as, like, believing propaganda, like, either way. So I try to, like, sift through, like, the propaganda to apprehend the situation. I feel like it's kind of... It's not 100% true that, like, the only way to attain any information about the situation, like, is through, like, U.S. propaganda or through Chinese propaganda. I don't feel. Something that I think... One resource that I think is, is good in terms of, like, getting a picture of the situation is, is shahits.biz, S-H-A-H-I-T dot biz, which is, like, a database of, uh, you know, Uyghurs who have been interned uh, in China based on, like, various different sources. I mean, yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like it's a real phenomenon that's definitely happening. Really, I think pretty much like most of what or everything you could say about israel i mean obviously different situations but i feel like if you're critical of israel based on what they've done in palestine and to palestinians like you have to also be critical of china on the same basis like people get upset about like the term genocide being thrown around because people think about like the nazis and like whether i think that's like kind of like we can leave that aside like i think that there definitely is an attempt to transform a culture that is underway and you know to enforce like a kind of conformity and it's not like good and the methods that have used been used to pursue it have been you know definitely questionable also like uh, an aspect where this is sort of used or uh, instrumentalized uh, by various parties, including the U.S. government, against China, you know, and sort of political gamesmanship in, like, many different ways. But at the same time, like, some of, like, the discourse on Twitter around this, where it's, like, thread, like, why this is all fake, like, you know, and I'm, like, a 16-year-old, like... That, like, does kind of annoy me a little bit because I feel like those people, like, really have not like done like the proper work or really spoken to anyone like or when people are like you know all muslim countries like you know like saudi arabia doesn't acknowledge it or like whatever like wow like great or when like if you talk to like if you have like any relationship with any muslim like in your life like you know pretty much it's like widely recognized like because people actually have relationships with people who are Uyghur and like you know who and this is something that's pretty widespread so people that like know people have family members etc so it's kind of like eh, and yeah it's it's acknowledged but like the you know and the thing of like the idea that like oh you know there's trying to go to war with china like that's not gonna fucking happen like it might be used like to try to push china in one direction or the other in the same way that china will criticize the u.s like for uh its treatment of, of black americans for instance but it's not going to be like, you know, they're, they're, we're going to invade China. Like, that's just not going to... Like, these co- economies and these countries are so deeply integrated at this point. Like, it's a silly idea, and it's, like, very teenage to me. I don't know. You can say something. I can feel like you're itching mm-hmm. to, to weigh in. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I got a lot of thoughts uh, about this, and, uh, I mean, I think... One important thing to say off the bat is I feel like my sort of uh, my perception of this entire situation has, I think, evolved a little bit over the last couple of years, because I think when it first came out, my sort of sus CIA propaganda radar just started, you know, screaming, basically, um, with a lot of the like highly dramatized, uh, very like well-funded, like New York Times, like in- interactive investigative things and how 
I noticed that this figure, Adrian Zenz, this weird German evangelical guy who's made it like his life's right. work mm-hmm. to advocate, to, to basically do like a Falun Gong, but like for the Uyghur population, uh, ended up being kind of sourced on like everything from like the BBC to like Reuters to the New York Times to Washington Post. Like every time you see an article, it's like, let's talk to Adrian Zenz, this sus guy who said that like he's on a God ordained mission to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, I think that also, I think the use, like you said, of uh, the word genocide, which still gets bandied about quite a bit, that does uh, irk me uh, because I feel like that is categorically, I think the very least I can say is that categorically there is not a genocide as we properly understand that term going on in Xinjiang. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that like there's nothing going on and everything is just peaches and amazing and you know uh, they're being sent to vocational camps then taught like amazing values so they can go work in factories and you know uh, <laughs> like you know uh, out by the coast or whatever. I think that uh, but I think that saying that it's genocide is that that to me correct me if I'm wrong that implies that you are killing lots of people uh, almost categorically on the basis of their national or ethnic or religious background right like genocide involves killing people when people think of genocide they think of like gas chambers and nazi germany because that's like the archetypal image of genocide but i do think there's a little bit of like you know again like it's a very amorphous and very charged term so it's hard to like you know really say but i do think that even on the left there, like, people will say, like, you know, Israel is committing genocide against Palestinians. You know, they'll say it's, like, soft genocide or ethnic cleansing because, like, mm-hmm. many Palestinians do die, like, in a systemic way, but obviously they don't have gas chambers not being rounded up or anything like that, you know? Yes, like, yes. at this point in history, anyway. Uh, you know, so... No, for sure, for uh, sure. Like, but, like, there is... The there residential... Is... A good the... analogy I've seen is the residential school system in Canada for Native Americans. You know, like it's a, mm-hmm. a something that on a cultural level that does often have like consequences of people, you know, dying for for various. But it's not like a, you know, the for instance, like the way the Israelis, you know, Zionists will often point to the like, oh, the Palestinian population has actually grown, so <laughs> some genocide or whatever. But it's the same mm-hmm. type of thing. Like you know that obviously these people aren't being exterminated. But, like, there is an attempt to, of a cultural kind of purge and to, like, erase this, like, identity from, uh... Yes. Well, I Uh, I did, and that's the area where I think I've evolved on a little bit. Because the other thing that really jumped out at me, and I remember we used to get in, like, little fights about this sometimes. uh, Because (laughs) I think, like, maybe, I don't know, we were both kind of more strident on our, like, respective positions but the the knowledge and this is true that probably up to several thousand Uyghurs uh went were basically navigated their way through I think in a lot of cases like Turkish rat lines throughout Central Asia and then went to Syria and became U.S. backed rebels um some of them joined al-Nusra front a lot of them joined ISIS and you know there's pretty uh substantive evidence that that happened and so the fear i think you know going back a few years ago when all this started was that 
with the imminent kind of defeat of ISIS, which was mostly caused by Iran and Russia intervening um, in that conflict, not the U.S., basically that as the assets were kind of like wiped out in Syria and that mission had kind of uh, failed or they had served their purpose, that there was going to be this influx of like five to 10,000 Uyghurs who had been indoctrinated in whatever way you want to call it by ISIS with the kind of most virulent, uh, aggressive form of you know, Salafism or whatever you want to call it, that also has like a synergistic effect with kind of like ethnic separatism that has, you know, as we did talk about in the Victory episode, has kind of, you know, been simmering in that region for quite a while. And so there was a lot of fear. I, I think that to say that the Chinese like were making it up absolutely out of nowhere, that there was, it's just absolutely ridiculous not. that, yeah, well, you know, and there had been right. terrorist attacks and things like that. So I think, yeah. I think if any, it seemed like timed in a way to be like we're going to cut off at the pass this potential kind of influx of people that have been radicalized and have combat experience and might be sent back by whether it's by Turkish intelligence or by NATO or something like that to stir up trouble in this region which by the way this is the other big part of it and it gets to the critiques about China as well this is a critical corridor in the Belt and Road Initiative so basically they were not only they didn't just you know I think you know, I think it's safe to say, like, they didn't just spontaneously decide that they wanted to lift up the Uyghur population and, you know, have this influx of economic development. And also, it wasn't just, like, a purely counterterrorism-driven kind of thing, but all these things were kind of intertangled. And basically, I think what they started doing was they employed what seems to be a rather assertive and heavy-handed approach at kind of cultural reform, basically, to cut off at the yeah. pass anybody that it seems like is being too, too. It, it's also it's too important. Religious, I, I, yes, the vast it, it's also it has to do with like. Yeah, it's like also important to point out that it, it's not a wholesale ban on like you can't be Muslim in China anymore. And of course, there are other ethnic groups that are. Um, isn't it yeah. like the Hui? Although they um, faced, yeah, they faced uh, a little bit they, of uh, censorship and like you know control of their religious practices as well. The Hui have since this. Yes, like, they have. They have. On, you know. Yeah, uh, the, and and as we talked about in, in victory, like it kind of there was like this weird kind of dialectic going on between like the Soviet Union when they were around and China of like who treats their Muslim. Muslim minority population better and mm -hmm. so there were times where China was kind of like easing up and even like you know uh, basically like you know arming the Mujahideen like with the yeah help with the or like the at the urging or the behest of like William Colby to yes. you know uh, yeah try to subvert which, the Soviet Union which you know we talked yeah talking about is like a yeah. deep irony that now they're turning around also the other thing this is one of the things that um that has not gotten a ton of attention, but it's one of those little factoids that makes you kind of jump up and go a little yikes. And it, I think it it kind of breaks down a lot of the traditional dueling narratives around this whole thing, which is that China had hired, I forget exactly when, but sometime in the last couple of years, they hired Eric Prince on security mm -hmm. contracts in oh, Xinjiang. Yeah. Yeah. So the the level of ironies there are kind of mind blowing because Eric Prince, you know, really cut his teeth in Iraq, uh, both fighting and doing God knows what with the various insurgent groups and Al Qaeda in Iraq and things like that. There's a lot of whispers and 
kind of uh, uh, mumblings. I would have to kind of dive in and do more specific research. But I remember there were a lot of like shady allegations that, you know, Eric Prince doesn't just uh, train like badass based hero Navy SEALs or based proxy fighters. He also probably trains like terror, like well, who the people we would call terrorists who are quote unquote our enemy as they did in Syria over the last decade where we just turned on a dime and, you know, from our exoteric opposition to Al-Qaeda and realize, yeah, but in this country, eh, maybe we should arm them. They're not that bad, right? And right. so the fact that Eric Prince, who may have had, like, a hand, a direct hand, in the protean versions of what would become ISIS in Iraq in the 2000s, is now getting hired by China to protect infrastructure in Xinjiang against basically the modern day iteration of those same like kind of u.s contra isis fighters that are would be coming back so it's like he's on literally both sides of the game and then it begs the question about what is china up to these days if they're hiring eric prince and are they really it kind of really begs the question because i agree with you i no longer am convinced at all that I think there's a lot of like geopolitical harassment and trolling going on of China for various reasons. Maybe mm-hmm. in the years leading up to 2020, this was meant as a way to kind of like retard the development or frustrate the Belt and Road Initiative is if yes. maybe we can get like we can hype up these claims of we can use this loaded word genocide and, you know, exaggerate what they're doing. And they are doing something, but like really crank it up to like, oh, my God, nobody can you can't do business with. And, you know, also, as we see constantly, the U.S. government loves to come up with some humanitarian narrative and then not only slap sanctions on the country that they're targeting, but what I think is even more impactful is say to every other country around the world, well, we've determined that these guys are literally Hitlers, so you can't do business with them either. And so mm-hmm. then, you know, if they can get enough juice to kind of do that on a global scale, now China has a lot of juice of its own. So, you know, I think yeah. ultimately it seemed like that wasn't enough to get people to stop uh, part like the all these majority muslim countries from signing agreements to be involved in um right. you know in the the belt and road initiative but yeah, i don't just, think that they're I, I don't think we're gonna have yeah but yeah. i don't think that we're gonna go to war I, I don't ever think we're gonna go to war over xinjiang and i don't think no. we're gonna go over war over hong kong or taiwan we are deeply integrated with them and that's the point where i'm at now of a kind of i i still haven't really worked it out like i find the era of kind of from late Mao to like Zhang Xing to the Gang of Four to Dang and then like moving on to like, you know, today, I find it a really fascinating period. And I think a lot of people maybe are taking a second look at it right now because the the stable categories of like how, say, like a Mark an American Marxist or a Western Marxist should deal with China. I've never really felt fully comfortable with like either of those camps. I think a few years ago I was more like, hey, China obviously took a kind of like capitalist road revisionist turn in the 80s. Not the greatest thing, but they survived and they are on track to eclipse America in terms of like political and economic power. And mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's like, uh, it kind of sucks. It's like the only game in town, really, you know? And it, it's not quite as, uh, they're, they're much more nationalistically minded than even the Soviet Union yeah. at like the height of its like revisionist era or whatever. 
So, you know, it, it's like, ugh, it's not perfect, but if all the NATO countries and all the Western countries are just ganging up on China and trying to do this kind of humanitarian, like, right to protect propaganda shit the way they've done to all these weaker countries, then I'm reflexively going to be, like, against that and want to, like, defend China. But mm-hmm. as we see now, I think COVID really threw, like, a smoke bomb into that whole discourse because if you're at all skeptical of, like, the global response to COVID and it was completely co-signed by China, basically. In fact, they almost set the template for like, this is what you should do if you have a COVID outbreak. Cause the, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm actually not convinced that it first broke out there. There's like a, a lot of evidence kind of emerging that it might've been circulating in Europe and even in America in like, like, you know, remember when there was that, that like vaping disease uh, in the summer of 2019? Um, yeah. Where like right. people are going to hot. Yeah, there's just like, or whatever. Yeah, popcorn uh, lung. Yeah, just a lot of like weird shit like that. And then they, they have found people with antibodies like in like December, like in the water supply in Barcelona. Weird shit like that. But anyways, like the the, the fact that China was really kind of in lockstep with the WHO and you know kind of modeled like and because we think of them as as this like authoritarian country. It almost like like I remember a lot of people, you know, like the NPR type voices were almost like a little bit jelly of China for being so authoritarian because now it's like, why can't we just immediately log everything down and stop this? And so uh, like it it, it does feel like we are we are entangled in like this uh, devilish alliance with them that really started kind of in the, the late 70s and the early 80s. And there is a kind of like economic mutually assured destruction um Mm -hmm. almost analogous to like uh, the u.s and the soviet union like with their icbms where it's like okay we both have this immense power but if one of us tries to like kill the other like everybody goes down basically and i don't think that i don't think there's a way also to like wind back the clock and just like you know the rushites will get mad but like reindustrialize america I, I think <laughs> it, it's an interesting idea, but at the same time, like, I don't think you could just, like, like take the industrial capacity of China, just take it back. Like, we, we've crossed that bridge now. We're, we're too far down the road. And, in fact, they have such a greater industrial capacity than we do at this yeah. point that it wouldn't mm-hmm. even make sense. And so we're in a very tough situation with them where I think, you know, the rivalry is getting a little more intense to some degree. Um, and and also, like, I think the – okay, so the thing about Xinjiang that makes me kind of think is, like – and, you know, some people I don't think, like, wouldn't like this phrase. But if you think back to, like, the Cultural Revolution, which was kind of applied to, like, most of the people in China, uh, maybe more groups more than others, but it's not like the Han – the population was like exempt from the cultural revolution if anything like they were hit more directly by it right um if anything these peripheral regions were maybe like left out of it because it was considered yeah. to like just hey, leave them alone. like that that was the attitude i would say more the ambient attitude towards the, the xinjiang for like most of china's like you know communist history is just like eh, they're out there like whatever but now the idea of them sending people to kind of vocational slash like like cultural re-education camps it's uh it might be one thing if this is like a maoist uh thing to like integrate everybody into like a new social society and like purge like capitalist bourgeois thinking or retrograde ideas like at least that was like taking a full-scale approach to like oh we need to we need to exercise this the, the demons of you know the capitalist past that still linger 
But what they're doing here in terms of taking people who they think are maybe too religious uh, or maybe too nationalist separatist or whatever is they're inculcating them with like uh, it like China's great and like you should go like move to a factory outside of Shanghai and like work like 50 hours a week and then like make some money and like you're telling women there was that kind of cringy thing about like like, you know women are no longer baby baby making yeah yeah Mm -hmm. it's like okay like you know to me that's yeah i find very ironic about like all these people like on twitter with like stalin avatars who just like whenever anything like this comes up to be like oh it's all adrian zins like and it just like is a talisman that like turns off their brains and like they can't you know, uh, something that's ironic about that is, like, uh, that the Soviet Union actually, like, everything that, like, you would, you know, in your darkest fantasies what the CIA is doing with, like, these, like, evil, like, Uyghur insurgents, like, disrupt China, like, the Soviet yeah. Union did, like, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> they, like, actually did, like, when there was, like, a Republic of East Turkestan, like, you know, for one period of time, I believe it was called the Republic of East Turkestan. Um, yeah, there but, was like, a, in the 60s, I believe, like, there was a border dispute. Yeah, they recently found, like, actually from the 40s, they recently found, like, a Politburo document on Xinjiang where basically they talk about how, like, you know, we helped the Chinese-sponsored governor to fight the Japanese, but, you know, they say, uh, however, the awakening of the ethnic awareness of the minorities of Xinjiang led to a conflict with the governor's desire to provide himself and the clique around him with unlimited power in the province. Not wishing to allow a growth in the influence of ethnic cadre on the broad masses of the population, the governor began to carry out mass arrests and the removal of ethnic minorities from the governing bodies of the province and switched to uh, practice, uh, in practice to a policy of colonial repression. Taking into account the growing sympathies of the people toward the Soviet Union, the governor began to wage propaganda that he was supposedly pursuing his policy of repression of non-Chinese minorities with the consent of the Soviet government. At the same time, the governor took hostile positions with respect to the Soviet specialists in Xinjiang. The Soviet government cannot tolerate the provocative activity of the governor, which is hostile to the Soviet Union, and cannot give him aid uh, to pursue his current policy directed at oppressing the ethnic minorities of Xinjiang, and has already been forced to take a number of steps to curtail the work of Soviet organizations uh, in Xinjiang. Based on this, in addition to the adopted decisions previously, they decreed to support the non-Chinese ethnic minorities in their struggle against the repressive colonialist policy of the governor and the Xinjiang government, and uh, the Mm. creation of government bodies in districts, which are composed of people who enjoy the trust of the local ethnic population, uh, Mm. the creation of a Xinjiang National Political Council organized on the basis of appointment by election of its representatives in proportion to the size of the population of each ethnic group, the restoration of ethnic military units, you know, and mm. other things, like, including, wow. like, they basically were pressing the sponsor left terrorism button. Uh, they yes. They even <laughs> wanted to create illegal groups in the territory of Xinjiang among Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, Mongols, and others, composed both local ethnic personnel as well as specially trained personnel from Soviet Central Asian republics. And basically, they wow. gave, like, direct support in developing, like, you know, guerrilla fighters against the government, like, to, you know, to break away well, from it, Chinese It just sounds... It, it it sounds yeah. really um democratic remind me again like who was the leader of the soviet union when when that policy was enacted 
uh, yeah, that would be a uh, Stalin. And in fact, I think a lot oh, of this yeah, was. Oh, yeah, Stalin. Hmm, uh, interesting. Yeah, hmm. yes. Oh, um, yeah, Mr., uh, Mr., oh, he hated ethnic minority so much. Uh, then why did he, like, why did Lenin ask him to write the nationality policy? Yes. Interesting. Um, <laughs> you know? I think that that, yeah. that is, I mean, also, you know, I think there's a difference between, like, the Soviets, like, doing that to try to, like, empower the local people and, like, the CIA just, like, kind of like coming in and like let's cause trouble <laughs> you know because well, like they don't want yeah, anything better I, for right, east turkestan course. like that, that, it's gonna it's, be it's obvious that like the soviet union also had some like personal motivations as well like in the same way that the u.s sure. government will like put it in like language of like human rights or whatever you know they uh dress it up in yes in certain ways you know i think that like they were saying like, but well, th- you that, know, was also, that, that was also that was also etc yeah yeah so. that was also before mao like won the civil war so i think those were contested areas so even though that guy might have been a communist i think there was still you know, there's a lot of like popular frontism going on with the in, on the Chinese situation. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think that yeah, that's probably something like, they know, they the didn't East... pursue that after from like Mao winning to basically the Sino-Soviet split. I don't think they they tried anything. But then after the Sino-Soviet split, they had some disputes in the '60s. Uh, over the the kind of uh, Xinjiang, East Turkestan kind of area. Yeah, maybe there was a lull like in there when they had relatively good relations with Mao, but I do think that uh, there was a lot of activity beyond uh, just that. I'm not sure if you know what if they were delayed until the 60s, but you know even you know the East Turkestan movement, which is something that they you know people say like oh my god like that separatism anyone like refers to, like that's kind of something that was like soviet sponsored like uh yeah, you know, yeah. They, like, i mean i don't think it operation. i don't think it means that like if you're you know, uh, yeah. you know a soviet supporter or marxist like today then you must support like the cia's ops well, to like destabilize right the of region. course no i'm just but i'm just saying that like the you know uh the idea that like uh this is like a fundamentally reactionary element that like you know and china is like fundamentally like socialist like obviously this is not something that like the soviets perceived as being true that like well i I think uh, also i think you would have to look at the character of like groups like the world Uyghur congress and people like that who are very ned like basically color revolutioned up these days and maybe the composition of like whatever the ethnic uh guerrillas were back in like the 1940s but still i i would err on the side more of i would agree with you that just assuming that china is like doing the good socialist thing and anybody that doesn't like it is just being a reactionary or is like a foreign puppet or something like that i wouldn't jump to that conclusion anymore because i'm not sure i think china is pursuing something that it perceives to be pragmatic and Mm -hmm. it is heavy-handed in like definitely some ways and uh it's not like as i've discussed i think on the last q a that like the antagonism towards religion and the religious i feel like is the greatest flaw of like 20th century marxism or is like the greatest misstep because it what what does it really get you at the end of the day besides a ton of resentment and i don't know it just it, it seems like it it's always like a losing strategy to go for that level of 
kind of like social uh, control or conditioning or whatever. I mean, as we said, like Stalin kind of rehabilitated like most of the religions in in the Soviet Union, like during World War Two, because it was just like we can't afford to just like keep dunking on like religious people when we need like our priests to like encourage people to go join the Red Army and shit. You know what I mean? Like uh, <laughs> this is really something that's like not necessary. Like we can actually just like bring back. I was reading a communique the other day from the Polish ambassador during World War II, and he was uh, speaking very glowingly about, like, the exile Polish army in the Soviet Union and how they had already given them full religious freedom and assigned them, like, Catholic chaplains and how pleased everybody was. I'm just like, oh, yeah, sounds so authoritarian. Um, You know, but uh, I think that, yeah, I think going after people's religious beliefs and also it opens the door for then the CIA to worm its way in with people that that maybe rightfully feel persecuted for their religion and then start distributing yeah. the, the 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 fraudulent version of Islam that they've been sponsoring for 40 years to tr- actually try to get some people to you know basically yeah. blow some shit and up I mean, or do a knife attack has been like very extreme like you know people who are like fat people who fast or like have beards or whatever or discourage drinking alcohol you know that's like seen as like infection with Giant, like you know with a religious extremism or whatever like you know that's yeah, uh yeah, you know exactly. pretty intense yeah yeah, yeah. like uh, maybe they, they shouldn't have, have teamed broad... up with saudi arabia in the 80s uh that was you know well, they did yeah they teamed up <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, I mean yeah. that's what you You're get. Right, that, yeah. Like that is kind of what you get. China for like deciding with all the rea- the global reactionaries who were like pushing this type of religion. That like now you're shocked that it it like maybe is like seeping into one of your provinces. Like you know you guys could have maybe uh, you know helped put a kibosh on this back in the eighties, but just had to get back at the Soviets, didn't you? There's actually yeah. a series of letters uh, back and forth between Stalin and uh, Alejandro Torre, uh, who I guess was, uh, you know, one of the leaders of the Second East Turkestan Republic. Very, very, uh, very positive, or you know, very uh, pleasant correspondence. But yeah, I think that he was mostly a, a fighter against uh, Chinese nationalists. So you know, not really mm-hmm. anything yeah. there, but uh, you know, yeah, just, yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a wilderness of mirrors, and yeah. Um, um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, right. uh, yeah, that was already pretty uh, pretty hot, but do you want to read number two? All right, yeah. Jimmy Fallon Gong asks, I would like to know each of the host's hottest takes, if the, that they feel comfortable sharing, as gauged by the most consistent pushback they get, serious or not. Hmm. Oh, what, about, uh, what do you I think? Well, I mean, I have some, like, you know, religious, like, conservative takes, but I almost don't consider those to be hot takes. I feel like they're almost, by definition, like, the coldest takes in the book, you know? Like, uh, (laughs) so, even though, like, they might get some push, I don't know, like, uh, yeah. Mm, I feel like one I'll throw out, maybe, is that the the printing press, I think, was, like, a mistake. The printing press and its consequences... (laughs) Have been a disaster been a for disaster. the human race. Uh, yeah, and that like having a manuscript okay. culture is much better. Like actually, written manuscripts are you know all the the benefits of the printing press are outweighed by the drawbacks of you know the homogenization and the lack of intimacy created by not having manuscripts. So I think that you know if you look back at for instance Islamic manuscripts from like you know the thriving manuscript culture of the Islamic. Uh, you know, general uh, ecumen 
uh, before the the time of the printing press. The Ottomans made the right choice in, in being slow to to adapt it uh, to adopt it. I'm gonna take a strong anti printing press stance. I mean, I feel like. Uh, just being like Satan's real is like one that gets pushed back, but that's not like the one that's gonna get like gonna seem spicy to the audience of this podcast. That's um, true, but in the outside that, world, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that yeah, definitely. We, we've um, seen a lot of that this week. We're recording this on the on the week that uh, Lil Nas X released his Satan shoes and his video yes, where he right, yes, on Daddy Satan. Yeah, yeah. So that's been. Yeah, a, I was a little uh, bit uh, impressed by like the amount of pushback that he got, but it was also like kind of from like you know people who uh i'm not like super stoked to have like you know on on aligned with with me on the satan issue like candace owens or whatever you know so <laughs> trying to think i don't know what, what do you, like why don't you throw one out i'll think if i, I have some others. i mean uh, yeah. it, it, um, it is hard i mean yeah i feel like there the, the there's certain hot takes that like we repeat regularly so they're nothing new um yeah i mean like what has what are the hottest takes I feel comfortable sharing or the most consistent pushback I've gotten? I don't know. Like saying the Eagles are good. Get a lot of pushback. Saying the Eagles are good. Um, Saying the Eagles are good. Uh, It fucking triggers people. It pisses people off. A lot of people. There's always a surprising amount of people that are, you know, willing to like that, that'll ride with you when you say that, you know, that, that feel it too. But it's like, there's this cloud where you're not allowed to acknowledge that, they were one of the best bands or that they're simply just good like they have to be lame for some reason there has to be something wrong with them uh there's no way that they have like the best-selling album in american history uh they're just i don't know i think we've we've mentioned it before like there's the the aspect of the ubiquity of like it's been on radio non-stop for like 50 years and i think a lot of people don't like listen a little deeper to it um like hotel california they might think Hotel California. It's like the the silly thing. Speaking of like Satanism in rock music, you know, there was that rumor that Anton LaVey was like lurking in the photo, like in the liner notes of like Hotel California. Like he's like up on the balcony, like in the shadows. And that basically, you know, the whole Hotel California album is like an ode to Satan or something like that, which it, it so is not. If you're listening to it, it's a pretty anti-Satanic album, uh, pretty anti like American album, really like if you listen to the last resort the final track on it um talk about not uh not erasing genocide uh they go there mm-hmm. but yeah i mean we're gonna do an eagles episode it's coming so you know everybody yeah, get excited um we're gonna do it in the next uh, month so i don't need to say too much more on that right now yeah i I, yeah. I don't i don't know if i've gotten like pushback maybe i'm just like maybe i'm a coward maybe i'm just tactful or like tactical about mm-hmm. what i go off on um i actually you know what okay no i'll i'll give a little i'll give a little red meat to uh jimmy fallon gong um i think that i probably would get pushback if i like tweeted about this but i do feel like the the liberal culture around abortion susses me out i'm not like I'm not anti, like, I, I support, like, the legality of it, um, uh-huh. you, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, like, I'm not, like, a... People being like, I just got an abortion, like, it's Like, great, shout your you abortion, know, like, shit like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, also, like, right. the un, the absolute unassailability of Planned Parenthood and the fact that Margaret Sanger was, like, a huge fucking eugenicist and incredibly racist and, like, wanted to put 
Planned Parenthood's in mostly in like Harlem and in black neighborhoods because she thought they should reproduce less. There's just a lot of stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then you see today and it's like you can't say shit without basically getting like put in like you're a crazy pro-life like piece of shit who wants women to be enslaved. Like you fucker. I don't know. I'm just going off of like conversations I've had with like women that I know who also feel mm-hmm. a kind of like it, it have a similar view of like I don't want it to be outlawed but some of this like social media stuff just like self championing it as like a thing is just like fucking awesome and like you know or posting I don't know it's like whenever somebody some like Candace Owens person like posts something pro-life like like post a picture of like a dead fetus like under it's like yo chill the fuck out like you know what I mean like it's I feel like it's not like a um it's not like a, a an experience to be like a idealized I think there's um I mean even birth control has its problems with hormones and things like that I know a lot of women have had like pretty shitty experiences on that stuff um but still it's like uh, Mm -hmm. there's just something about it like in our culture maybe it hasn't been as prominent over the last few years but I mean I remember when there was that like uh what was it like the james o'keefe thing in like 2015 or 2016 where they were Uh, talking about like they're selling babies for lamborghinis folks you know alex jones is like go like look at her slurping champagne talking about but there was a little bit of like a a callousness in some of those like hidden videos towards the people talking about how they're gonna like sell the aborted fetuses from the planned parenthood clinic to like a bio research company and like how much money the clinic was gonna make from it and just felt a little bit like "Eh." um and you know if i want to even go double down on that i would say okay no this leads to an even hotter take i'm gonna do it people can hate me one child policy in china kind of fucked up <laughs> like mm-hmm. kind of fucked yeah, up well, it's um, funny that like yeah mm-hmm. but uh, even though I, it's worth saying that like uyghurs and other people in rural populations were allowed to have two kids it's funny because they were for a while but then like after you know like uh the china realized that it was actually not to their advantage or like that the overpopulation concerns that kind of motivated it like mm. it didn't really pan out because that was like an original sort of climate change level scare yes then like actually yes. a lot of the people who have been interned are interned for violating the one child policy now or uh limitations on on, on children but oh, so if you've uh, been interned you get you, you you get demoted to one child well a lot of the reason why people have been interned is because they've been determined that they violated the policy oh okay um, okay okay it so it's a, it's yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and, you know, I think that one thing that's interesting that never gets talked about with the one-child policy, I think there's often this, like, conflation to think of it as, like, almost like this peak Maoist policy of, like, the ultimate mm-hmm. cultural revolution. Like, Mao just, like, wanted to control everybody's wombs and, like, eh, like communism just wants to, like, own everything about you. But actually, if you look at it, no, like, Mao uh, never—I th- read a couple academic papers about it recently, and while Mao—he uh, might have said some things about— about how maybe we should uh, have some kind of program to like, you know, basically like manage the population a little better, but he never uh, entertained the idea of like we should have a compulsory policy. And it was it was Daddy Dang who in- instituted that. And most people, I I think maybe don't know this, but he partly did so at the like fanatical urging of Western NGOs like the Club of Rome. And I believe like the IMF and the World Bank, who actually went so far as to predicate giving financial loans and like more integration into the global capitalist system. Uh, They made it conditional 
upon instituting the one-child policy. So it was actually Westerners and the capitalist revisionist daddy himself that actually instituted this highly, quote-unquote, authoritarian policy, which did have a lot of, you know, they still claim today. Now, you know, they basically phased it out. I think Xi phased it out right after he got Mm -hmm. into power. And what they say today is like, well, look, it had a great impact. Look how wealthy we are today. It wouldn't have been possible if everybody had a bunch of kids. But that's debatable, I think. I, I think it's quite debatable. There could have been systems of incentives or other things like that that don't involve just like setting a a hard limit and uh and i think it it bodes a little bit sus for the rest of the capitalist world and the west who maybe thought that we were immune to this kind of a pervasive government control into into your life and your personal decisions and your reproductive health but now uh, everybody's downloading their their Excelsior pass and their COVID pass on their phone, so they're gonna have to show like a bio card to go do lots of things, right? And so all of a sudden, it feels like oh, actually, you could. Oh, I don't think I don't think there would ever be a literal one-child policy, but I could totally imagine. You know, Bill Gates doesn't want people to have more than one fucking kid, right? Like no way, no um, yeah, fucking not. way, yeah. no probably way that Jeff Bezos, uh, two or three, I think. Uh, but you know, I, I think that's kind of irrelevant because um, he's he's special. He's better than he, us. Well, yeah. So I think uh, all right. these people, like Bezos and Klaus Schwab and all these psychos, do they want like working class and poor people or even middle class people to have like more than one kid? Probably not because. I guarantee, like, I, you cannot convince me that when they're sitting around thinking about how are we going to, quote-unquote, respond to climate change, that nobody has brought up that idea, which was so popular in the 70s with, like, the Club of Rome, that we need to, like, curb population growth on Earth because we're going to run out of resources. So, you know, it's like, well, Bill Gates, like, slipped years ago of saying, like, you know oh like he said a, a bunch of times about different places like oh you, you know you, oh do this or you might have population growth in places you don't want it like yemen and it's like Ooh, okay or you know talking about in africa how like he really wants to like expand reproductive health access in africa like really 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 badly it just wants to limit those childbirths in africa specifically and it is not hard to think that like that is something that probably you know when they're on epstein's island at their little scientific powwow that they're talking about look it's like you know the georgia guystones another sus weird monument that like ted turner probably put up but you know that, that like uh dreams of a world where like the population is reduced to like 500 million people and i think that like the ruling class that's a constant threat to their power is having too many damn hungry mouths to feed around. So I feel like in America, it's going to take a lot of like, I I feel it in our culture. I feel that there's like an antinatalism, an indirect antinatalism that has seeped into our culture, but it's not really allowed to be like called out for like what it is. Like, I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the growing cost of like having a child and being able to provide for them is skyrocketed, Mm -hmm. especially in big cities. It it used to be kind of maybe a cool new thing when like women enter the workforce in the seventies and the eighties, but now it's just like a necessity. Like both people have to work and, you know, if you're lucky, you can buy in both your incomes, but you know, and then simultaneously this hyper valorization of like uh, abortion 
as just like an awesome thing and just like there's nothing you know it's weird because even in the 90s like you know people like hillary clinton would say you know like i you know like safe legal and rare right like that was kind of like the gesturing that democrats yeah used to have mm-hmm. which i think actually it was like pretty savvy messaging and probably hit with like the majority of that, that that was probably the most maximalist kind of slogan you could have or position to have on it is that look i'm not just like totally praising abortion but it should be safe it should be legal for people that really need it and hopefully we can have other policies that can make it more rare instead of just like more common because it's kind of like you're that's like a last line of defense i feel like for having an, an unwanted pregnancy or you know why is it unwanted like you know you could easily see a culture where nobody can afford to have a baby so then you know the liberals are there being like oh we'll just go get an abortion it's cool and it's mm-hmm. like well wait a minute like that's different from like i really don't or you know my god like you were raped or something you know that it, it's like different than like i don't want to have yes. this baby no matter what and like the forces of society are like bearing down upon me and like almost bullying me into like don't have that baby don't have it like get rid of it you know like right. a little yeah, devil like you know your, you know you're giving up your career your life your which is you know to be fair probably true that like you know the way society is configured now like yes uh, for to have like a middle class life like it's not very feasible for you to have like a child at 18 or something you know uh for sure I mean, well, yeah not saying like anybody yeah, should like have one at 18 like say, but like that's another thing that i'd almost say like you know as a hot take is that like there's certain advantages to like a traditional paradigm of society where like such a thing would be like unthinkable and like a huge scandal and like if it were you know like uh to have kind of like extramarital like sex rampantly you know like Mm -hmm. uh there is in a way like certain uh aspects of that that are you know uh appealing obviously there's things that one could criticize as well but like in this case like uh, this is perhaps an example where like it uh causes this like awful decision which i think you know should be seen as like not an easy yeah I, i agree with you that it shouldn't be seen as like an easy choice to make you know it's something that i think uh should be made by the people who actually face that choice but Mm -hmm. like uh you know i think that for most people you know like uh, sometimes you'll see pushback to the idea like oh you know no one really wants to get an abortion you know like no one wants you know something that becomes necessary sometimes under certain circumstances but like the idea that like this is something that's like desirable or like pleasant or not like you know a deeply traumatic experience like i think yeah i don't know like i feel like that's uh a misleading idea obviously other people like can have it out like i'm not someone who will ever be in the position to have an abortion personally so can't really mm-hmm. say but i do think that yeah maybe uh there's uh, some the things what you're saying in terms of like yeah the like the valorization the sacramentalization of this thing that really is like a regrettable situation you know uh it like yeah I don't know and, and like, you know maybe sometimes it's like uh, not regrettable that that's fine i guess you know like that's your personal choice like it's uh Mm -hmm. like it doesn't have to i'm not saying you know you have to be traumatized by it you know if if it's not dramatic like that's great like you know that that's great but i think for a lot of people it it it's it's at least not a great kind of situation you know to to find yourself in so maybe let's not like 
do the whole hashtag campaign about like shouting your abortion and like just like like for everybody who had one and like doesn't feel like shouting about it that's a little bit cringy like and kind of fucked up a little bit i don't know it's like yeah and i feel like maybe there is i'm not like you know uh obviously like people know themselves better than i know them but i think that maybe some of that is like a way of dealing with something because like if you think about it like it's obviously something that you would prefer to not have to go through you know it's not just like a matter of like oh you know maybe i won't have to have this happen or maybe i well like whatever it makes no difference to me except like it takes up some time of my day or something you know it's obviously like something that would have an effect on you uh so i think like the you know the idea that this is like something that is just like routine or like a natural thing like it's something that some i don't think it's something that people should have to go through ideally you know i think that Mm -hmm. uh maybe like it, many situations like it's the best alternative like you know uh ma- you know many Absolutely. situations one can think of but like of course ideally like no i don't know if that's really a hot take but i will i will one uh, potentially hot take i i will say is that you know uh, margaret sanger you know uh is not as uh as bad as uh, she's often portrayed to be like in some of our our memes you know uh I think, like, obviously she was a eugenicist, like, in the way that, like, many people at the time were, but mm-hmm. Margaret Singer actually was anti-abortion. Fun fun little fact about her. She was anti-abortion. Wait, really? She was the creator of Planned Parenthood, yes, but she was uh, not an advocate of abortion. At least, you know, her, her whole thing was, you know, birth control so that people won't have to have abortions, you know. She was oh, very much okay, in the okay. extreme version of safe, legal, and rare. She viewed abortion as being, like, a very shameful uh thing that like you know Mm. she was trying to prevent from happening so uh and the whole like the thing about like i don't really know how to appraise like she had different like racial views that were expressed but like uh you know i think some of the ones that get like circulated are a little bit like uh distorted but i mean i won't defend her too much because like obviously like she was like uh, someone who traveled in these eugenic circles but it's a uh, you know a common idea well, that like she was this big advocate of abortion, but she actually wasn't. She okay. was an advocate of birth so that was that was but, a shift that happened uh, later. Um, yeah, later right, probably in the sixties and seventies. And I think even yeah. even Roe v. Wade, I, I've definitely heard some people like maybe that what what nudged the Supreme Court towards legalizing it in seventy four. That was actually I think the same year that the Club of Rome came out with their apocalyptic report about overpopulation and how there's going to be too many people and we need to like limit it so in a way it it was almost like that was america's alternative to doing a one-child policy was like well a like let's just make abortion like available and then you know Mm -hmm. that will maybe have that rbg for her part you know she actually was i think that she did make a good point that abortion will always be available for the richest women you know for yes. people who have money they will always have it available and like it yeah. will always happen so yeah. that is a fair point you know like yeah again like part of the law is to teach or like to you know encourage certain things and like obviously like you know i think that you can make certain 
determinations maybe i don't know but like and there's two ways you could read that also you could read that in a kind of i mean i think i could both read that in a kind of optimistic way of like well yeah like it it shouldn't be you know you shouldn't be discriminated against by class uh by basically you know poor people either have to get dangerous illegal abortions or whatever but you know rich people rich women can always get it so like that's a positive kind of um seems like an egalitarian thing but at the same time there is a little thing of like oh the bourgeoisie is like letting all the poor people have abortions now (laughs) kind of encouraging them to to go get Mm -hmm. them and stuff like just as they get completely obsessed with overpopulation and it's a little bit like okay Mm -hmm. like i think i see maybe there there's a a more um like cynical pragmatic uh, motivation maybe behind it cultural shift in the like the idea the encouragement that like if you become pregnant one of your most salient, like, options is to get an abortion, you know, like, uh, but we have, like, a very radically different society from even, like, what it was in the 19th century, where it would be, like, a huge scandal to have a child or to be, like, implicated in having sex out of wedlock, even, Yeah. you know, so this is, like, a huge change, uh, and Mm -hmm. we're still, like, really, like, trying to grapple with, like, how to deal with this, because it's really something that, like, I can't really think... I mean, people definitely have always had success out of wedlock, but there's always been, like, a a moral framework uh, that Mm -hmm. uh, has existed that, like, would, uh, you know, where that would be something that would just be, like, in, you know... uh, not conceivable or a real issue uh for like all or in, parties in, you know in certain families, sectors you know. of society it, there there were always you know a part of a city or you know out in the frontier or something like that where you know it's like all the the brothels in london and new york during the victorian era where everyone was so supposedly uptight everybody was still running around uh kind of screwing each other but it was like much more it wasn't in this open way that we saw in the late 20th century of like yeah. uh, promoting that as kind of a value that everybody right. should yeah. well, like, yeah, exactly. openly it's aspire kind of towards. Like brothels, you see like a place of like absolute shame and like degradation, whereas like now it's like you know OnlyFans, uh, kind of like a legitimate form of work. Yeah, like uh, it's uh, mm-hmm. you know just something that we just uh, yeah, and like actually maybe good or like you know something that like one shouldn't feel ashamed of or something like that i don't know it's kind of a hot take in society to even suggest that there might be a place for shame or whatever uh you Mm -hmm. know like no one should ever be ashamed of who they are you know like uh, but do not blank shame yeah and i'm not saying that we need to like turn back the clock and like reinstitute like you know a vast system of various shames and guilts that like uh are used or really like a uh, social uh sort of protocols that uh were uh, very important mechanisms for the running of society but you know i think that it is definitely is true that we're still trying to deal with the removal of that the transformation in it and i don't know what the what the consequences are but i mean this is the world that uh we live in so i think it's mm-hmm. uh you know something that we're comfortable with uh but we still might have uh, some appreciation for things having been uh, better in the or things having been uh, easier in some ways or simpler some, I guess yeah you know I guess that's kind of another hot take I might have yeah maybe simpler or yeah I mean well that's like probably my most uh, fundamental hot take is that like Sharia is good uh, like you know there's good <laughs> things about Sharia one thing I'll say is like you know this is like kind of a reaction I take like you know I think democracy even though like I'm pretty partial to democracy like i like the idea of it i think it's a little bit overrated uh and i think that like in many cases like 
societies that appear mm. democratic like aren't for pra- like you know for practical purposes like you know much more democratic than like an oligarchy or like a monarchy would be and that is very conceivable to have like a, a monarchy or an aristocracy that would be like uh you know more fulfilling or uh, a better environment for one's self-actualization than like uh some democracies that, yeah well you know, it's a little bit like uh like paul yeah. robeson said at one of those senate hearings where he challenged the idea that you know uh, that that like the authoritarianness of a country is like intrinsically linked to like its political ideology i think in many cases it can be but the idea that oh because a country calls itself a a democracy yeah yeah. like it's a meaningless metric because like authority is a universal phenomenon like you know some people will be like we got to get rid of all authority like that doesn't you know just seems to me inconceivable that there would be any kind of system like where there wouldn't be authority uh that would operate in some way yeah to say that you want to have a revolution but you want to get rid of all forms of authority is like the funniest shit i've ever heard um like what is a revolution if not taking authority from somebody else Mm -hmm. from a a group or a ruling class or something whoever's in charge and taking that authority and then you know what you're supposed to just like snap your fingers once you've taken it and like throw it in the fires of mount doom in mordor or something and then everyone will just be chill like it's just no yeah i'm with so i'm I'm kind of in between i'm kind of in between on that issue like on one hand like you know i see how like in a lot of our democracies like choices are very illusory uh or that the will and desires of the people like aren't properly advocated or uh brought forth by representatives but at the same time you know like when most people who are like uh we must restore like the good society or like you know like a a true aristocracy need like all the people like suck Mm -hmm. and like i definitely am more like inclined to democracy than like those people are so you know i'm kind of like in between those two poles of being like what like you know you think like tyranny could be good or like you know or like uh upholding democracy or like liberal values is like the you know the sine qua non of like a functioning society versus like someone who Uh you know is like a monarchist and like desires the restoration of like an aristocracy or like a quraishi rule or something like that you know uh yeah yeah yeah. um Um, i mean i believe in democracy people's democracy led by yeah but what if like there was a Um, vanguard party you know or a dictatorship well yeah that's what i'm that's what i mean uh you can't have a people's democracy without a vanguard party yeah you know manage the whole thing yeah well that will be like from our last q a the issue of uh islamic uh marxism we need like a shura council maybe you could have kind of bottom-up shura councils that you know report up to the um you know the the, the worldly center or something the wally like um uh-huh. yeah the worldly center um yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. think of worse mm-hmm. ways to go about it um yeah but, i mean yeah. like uh yeah there's sometimes i guess like you know something that you might vacillate on uh depending on one's mood or whims but there's definitely sometimes where you're like like a mediocre conate would be like just as good as this like democracy that we have uh <laughs> you know but yeah no, I, I don't but, i yeah. I'm, not, I'm not feeling the fetish anymore for it that uh, our institutions mm. are just so fucking special in this bourgeois democracy mm. that uh so responsive yeah. i really felt but that's seen, like again you know you know that's a self-consciously like spicy take i don't know do we have any others yeah. uh, uh I no got, yeah, I, they were mostly I, I of the same good. flavor they were all like kind of like reactionary 
takes. Uh, <laughs> do we have any like uh, like super progressive takes that would like agitate reactionaries? I feel like they're 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 pretty front loaded in terms of uh, I don't know our like antipathy towards U.S. imperialism and yeah. I don't know, like, it's, uh, and, like, my refusal to, like, uh, say bad things about Stalin, and, you know, I mean, I think there's, there's plenty there for reactionaries to, like, you know, pick a bone with, basically. Yeah, that's true, yeah. But, you know, I like to, I I like to give them a bone, too, so. Yeah. Yeah, or throw them a bone, yeah. either of you have any thoughts about Reza Nagaristani and Cyclonopedia complicity with anonymous materials? I was pretty excited to get this question because, I mean, you know, uh, we do have thoughts about Nagaristani's Cyclonopedia complicity with anonymous materials uh, going back a, a number of years, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean... first read this book, it must have been in 2016 it was recommended to me. Okay. Um, okay. So yeah, yeah. I recommended I'll, it to you after that. Yeah, I'll just yeah. I'll just say right off the bat because that was uh, that was during our kind of um period of of writing uh, some screenplays together, and that was one book that you brought to me and to our other friend uh, as something that could be maybe like uh, adapted <laughs> into either a movie yeah. or a TV show. We and we actually, s- yeah. we did, we, mm-hmm. we, we never got to the point of actually laying down a draft of it, but I literally did yeah, or really even. Yeah. Uh, oh, but you, or an yeah, outline pitch it to some people. Yeah. I pitched right. it to a few different like executives at production companies <laughs> around Hollywood when I was just kind of thinking like, Oh, I got to have something uh, to say, you know the old uh, what else are you working on kind of thing and right. i did bring it up a few times and one time i did get a pretty positive reaction from one executive we thought it sounded pretty interesting it's a hard thing to kind of you know bottle up into like a one minute sort of like hollywood pitch you know because it mm-hmm. it belongs yeah, in this it's extremely difficult it's not really a narrative book uh mm-hmm. at all you know even though it has like fictional or like hyperstitional elements you know it's not really mm-hmm. uh it was more it's, of like a tone i guess uh it's theory fiction right isn't that yeah, the, the kind fiction. of subgenre yeah yeah yes. which mm-hmm. which is yeah. really interesting i personally think it, it probably we were probably too ambitious to think about it as like a tv pilot because you're right like it doesn't have a kind of like coherent narrative backbone so much uh it'd probably be do better as like a very weird movie if anything um maybe yeah i think like uh you know something like in that vein could basically you know because 
it's more or less like a Lovecraftian like pastiche with like certain mm-hmm. I mean I feel like the interesting hook for like people in the terms of the fictional aspect of it is like the idea of oil like being alive and being like a uh-huh. like a sentient kind of like Lovecraftian sort of entity that is like yeah. trying to uh, achieve uh, unity or like the mockery of the solar empire or whatever yep. and thereby yep. like you know, and it's manipulating, like, all these geopolitical forces to, like, achieve that. I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, interesting. Uh, it, it's interesting that I think, you know, Reza Nagaristani ha- is, like, not really into the book anymore and doesn't, like, care for it. Uh, oh, really? At least, like, following him on Twitter, he's made, like, some kind of, like, negative remarks about it in passing. Yeah. I had, like, actually, like, a small, like, fight with Reza Nagaristani, like, a, a relatively civil but small fight with him on Twitter once. Um, oh, really? Over, like, Persian poetry, yes. Uh, <laughs> he, like, had some kind of, like, edgy take about how, like, you know, he's like, oh, they are insurgent philosophers, like, you know, storming the gates of, of heaven or whatever, and it's just like, uh, like, that's such a lame take, you know, so I was just like... The uh, whole, like, like, Rumi was rebelling against Islam kind of Right, or yeah, like, when they say, like, uh, burn down the Kaaba or whatever, that means, like, they are atheists or something, like, you Mm. know, it's not... He he does post some kind of lib takes, right? doesn't he yeah i think i follow him bit. too um, we we were well, you were yeah, gonna like reach out to him at some point maybe you ruined that now by insulting well him, uh, i mean but... he, what he did offer you know he said i think we were discussing uh Mansur al-halaj am i right but yeah i think maybe that was him and he said that he had some letter of halajs that uh he was gonna send to me some letter in persian and uh you know we dm'd about it a little bit but he never sent it to me you know apparently he's gonna prove his ideas uh so i don't know i never received it i even yeah it's very sj in some ways like the combination of geopolitics and the the kind of characterization of oil as like a sentient uh, sort of force with like its own agenda that is tied up yeah, with all these occult the orders like type vibes i think there's even a passage mm-hmm. about like pazuzu and uh cyclonopedia mm. and um, and there are even though this was written when was it written like 2000 was it written as far back as like 2009 or was it like 2013 yeah that it came I out i think it was yeah i don't think it came out around that i think it was written pretty long okay because uh, i i remember uh, that it yeah. it predated isis but when we were kind of talking about it and discovering it it was like kind of peak syrian war sort of days mm-hmm. and weren't there yeah. some kind of isis style salafist terrorists that just wanted to blow up like every vertical structure to like well, flatten that was, like, everything the idea. yeah well that was like a theoretical concept was that like you know they saw it like horizontality or whatever it's all like very delusian you know there's tons <laughs> of like delus in it you know so like territorialization uh there's a couple characters you know um in the book like there's one sort of colonel kurtz type figure mm-hmm. colonel uh, west you know uh yeah colonel west right yeah, yeah. That, that's who uh is all about like deterritoriality and like horizontalizing things and yeah there's discussion of drones and things like that now it's definitely an interesting uh book we got uh, it on the shelf um maybe one day one day yeah um, maybe we'll we'll do an episode subliminal jihad production there's, there's some we'll... interesting things on there <laughs> yeah it's a jihad production company uh mm-hmm. jihad productions again like uh i feel like some of like the landian alignments of some of that stuff is like a little bit you know i'm not like super all about like the kind of like uh hyperstitional outsideness like coldness 
be my god type stuff you know like mm, uh, I think enough. there's a little bit of like sussness there I think it definitely could be an interesting episode because it's such a uh, popular book now you know I feel like I hear about it all the time you know when I first heard about it I had never you know I uh, heard about it from another graduate student you know i had never like well, uh, it is you know before. you could see it yeah. being like uh like basically it's like lovecraft country for theory-brained grad students you know for them to feel seen in a lovecraftian mm-hmm. context um yeah. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it's like yeah. you know everyone just cheering every time like deleuze is mentioned uh or something like that yeah people do love deleuze he's uh you know one of the few uh, people who uh, is, is still just pretty valorized uh, pretty uncritically mm-hmm. um, but I think you know Deleuze has some problems I think I mentioned it before but like the whole rhizome versus tree thing doesn't make any mm-hmm. sense uh, but anyway yeah, like yeah, uh, yeah um, Nick Land I guess okay. wrote a blurb for uh, and so damn so did Peter Lambord Wilson who wrote a blurb for Cyclonopedia so that's a little bit like hmm. so yeah I don't know I don't know about Reza but you know some of his takes are okay some of them you know uh provoke a little bit of pushback uh but anyway oh. yeah oh peter lamborn wilson i always forget that's hawking bay you're talking about the pedo yeah mm-hmm. yeah yes. the temporary autonomous zone pedo um yes okay. you want to move on to number sure uh, yeah four yeah four is another one that yeah like uh might be kind of a pun but uh it's his thoughts on robert anton wilson slash discordianism also have you read gravity's rainbow yet as of the latter, like, I haven't, although I keep meaning to. Uh, Same. Busy times, busy times, you know, difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did read it when I was young, but I would want to do a reread of it. I was also, uh, Jimmy Falcon Gong recommended me another uh, one of his books. It was... Bleeding Edge? Uh, Vineland? Mm, no, it was Against the Day. Okay. He, yeah, he said that would be interesting. And that was in a similar vein to our episode on spirit photography. Uh, and that's okay. what made him, you know, recommend it. So I'd be interested to read that for like a pension episode. But we might have to do a pension series because there's so many yeah. books. Uh, exactly. Yeah. But I exactly. definitely would want to read Gravity's Rainbow. But as to Robert Anton Wilson, I mean, I feel like he's, I feel like he's come up a couple times on episodes since you know we last took the question of this uh, same vein. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Same. Uh, yeah. About Robert Anton Wilson and maybe thoughts on him. I think it probably was formulated in a similar way but that's from molly ringwald this question comes by the way where are some of the places that we've encountered him lately i think we definitely came up in jimmy fallon gong's episode um, yes it did because like he was part up. of the ayn rand group in new york that mm-hmm. i guess yeah jack sarfati was involved in and uh, walter bream the pedophile yeah. who ran the gifted children program mm-hmm. uh yeah. yeah where else did i mean he popped up to the extent that i think uh, I don't know if we really discussed the Adam Curtis documentary and like its treatment of Carrie Thornley, who's one of the oh, founders no, of the Discordian Society. I still haven't watched that just because everyone was it's, like, eh, you know, uh, so I was like, it, do I really need to bother It is this? extremely like, eh. Yeah. And I, I say that as somebody who kind of likes his approach and like style as a kind of documentarian, but I'm getting increasingly frustrated by his like lazy sweeping takes on very complicated historical phenomena and his blind spots to things that should be super obvious. Like how can you make Carrie Thornley an entire segment of your nine hour documentary series and kind of like not go into Robert Anton Wilson or 
like the later history of the Discordians or anything else and just be like, oh, like uh, he testified, for, he knew Harvey Oswald and then decided that, you know, there's no conspiracy at the end. Like, it's just really frustrating. But I think the Discordian Society is kind of significant and influential. And Robert Anton Wilson was, I think we probably talked about him and kind of uh, his Illuminatus trilogy of books, which kind of popularized the idea of the Illuminati and arguably kind of shit-coded and, like, irony cloaked the entire discussion of conspiracies in mm-hmm. and kind of, like, jumbled them all together, like, mixing kind of more wacky, like, UFO things with maybe more real kind of, par- you know, deep politics uh, phenomena and mixing it all in a big, like, Mary prankster bag that you can never actually, like, sort out and make sense of. So mm-hmm. it, to that extent, I find Robert Anton Wilson, like, fundamentally sus and the Discordian Society also very sus. And I feel like a lot of the early personalities that maybe were popular, I don't know, it makes, makes me think about people like Weave, like these kind of hacker type people. I think they were mm-hmm. all and like the Cult of the Dead Cow that Beto O'Rourke was in. I think a lot of those people had a certain Discordian influence whether they properly realized it or not you know i feel like there there were discordians like probably on the well and like on the deadhead usenet and stuff like back in the 80s like that was the type of population that was most early that was plugged in the most early into the cult internet culture and i feel like i probably had an outsized role in shaping it and mm-hmm. yeah i don't know i think i think they it, he does deserve like a full kind of breakdown one day uh and clearly the grotto wants to know they want to know more so he helped develop like the whole idea of neural linguistic programming didn't he like uh, that was another thing that we kind of stumbled upon uh yes he he might have had a uh, milton erickson connection yeah possibly he was friends with someone who we just mentioned peter lambert wilson uh, another wilson Mm -hmm. no relation but they were good friends you know creepy hakim bay well-known like anarcho pedo type uh nambla yeah he sort of in his obituary for robert anton wilson which i'm currently looking at uh suggested that he um always appeared cheerful which is either very good advertising for neuro-linguistic programming, a theory he developed mm. with Tim Leary, but which I never quite understood, or else for the therapeutic virtues of cannabis. Cause oh, that's interesting. Wait, uh, are, they, they, are they crediting Robert Anton Wilson and Tim Leary with developing neuro-linguistic programming? The th- yes, according to Peter Lambert Wilson in spring 2007 in The Fifth Estate, uh, which I guess is, you know a magazine where he often publishes so you can read it online okay yeah yeah, so yeah. oh and now yeah. i'm remembering some of the things we mentioned like yeah he did a lot of stuff uh he advocated leary's uh eight circuit model of consciousness and also i think uh they combined to form like the the symbol smile with like the eye squared which represents a uh, space migration intelligence increase and life and life extension and yeah like a lot of stuff like that and um very cool uh you know he said he he was a just like chomsky he was a libertarian socialist um but you know then he said i i ask only one thing of skeptics don't bring up soviet russia please that horrible example of state capitalism has nothing to do with what i and other libertarian socialists would offer as an alternative to the present system by the 1980s he was saying that he quote does not like the spread of socialism (laughs) so cool yeah so you know like like the spread of socialism Uh uh-oh yeah there's also the church of the 
subgenius, one of the more cringy, edgelord atheist efforts uh, to exist. You know, and he was, I think, uh, yeah, he was Pope Bob in, uh, you know, that wacky parody religion. Cool. Yeah, I, I think he really uh, Every, like, he he is the intersects with so cool. many people. Like, he's yeah, the essence yeah. of, like, fucking, like, this... He's like he is the flying spaghetti monster. Yeah, like, he is incarnate. He is, he is the, that we should yeah. all worship. We're definitely going to go in on him kind of deeply one day because uh, he yes. would just in close proximity yeah, we'll, we'll to read so some many of the things. Illuminatus uh, stuff at some point. Um, mm-hmm. you know, exactly. Yes, he believed in every conspiracy, but also no conspiracy because <laughs> also like Fenord. Fenord, like that's oh, like you know, uh, yeah, like a, yeah, like uh, Spork, it's me, the Penguin of Doom. Uh, oh, God, is like yeah. yeah, he's the Penguin of Doom. Fenord, yeah, mm, yeah, okay, what, very what is, cool. The nonsense word Fenord, invented by the writers of Principia Discordia. Hmm, it is a subliminal mm. message technique, a word the majority of the population since early childhood have been trained to ignore, mm, but which they associate with a vague sense of unease. Oh, no. Yep, and see, the word has been used in news group and hacker culture to indicate irony, humor, Fenord. or surrealism. Fenord. Dope. Fenord. Very cool. Fenord. <laughs> Very cool. I'm overwhelmed by how... Yeah, the interjection Fnord is given hypnotic power over the unenlightened. Wow, it is NLP. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Wow. But that, yeah, that's interesting, because I think, like, Silva was supposed to be the actual, you know, founder of it, but I think I think they were based out of either Esalen or SRI or some, or both or something like that. Oh, yeah, Gregory Bateson, who I believe was very close, uh, and Margaret Mead, his wife, who mm-hmm. I think maybe they ran, like, the Macy conferences in either the late 50s or the early 60s. Yeah, the Macy conferences in cybernetics, and then later set on group processes from 54 to 60 all about social and behavioral sciences and uh he they, he was heavily associated with Stuart brand of the whole earth catalog and yeah basically uh i think they did a lot um to um popular or i don't know i i'm pretty sure oh yeah bateson was also in the oss during world war ii along with dozens of other anthropologists um <laughs> cool and yeah uh I, I believe that he was big and kind of like promoting robert anton wilson and nlp was influenced like directly by uh some of gregory bateson's theories uh and uh so th- it's all part of the same kind of a uh, scene I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we'll we'll go in hard cuz yeah, I'm not, I feel like we're not done. Oh yeah, at the center of the growth, yeah, um basically blah blah blah. Esalen Institute is basically uh where it was discovered uh, or developed in the 70s. So very cool, not sus at all. Yes. You know. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. All right. right. So yeah, stay yeah. stay tuned for that. Okay, I guess we can uh move on to number 5 now uh from It's Drew Time. And he asks, any thoughts on the BTK killings and whether it was a program to kill style cover to assassinate intel types? Uh, who know. were his victims? Were they intel types? Well, uh, because I don't actually recall. Don't yeah, this is referring to the, the Dennis Raider, the bind, torture, kill, or BTK killer from, yes, I want right. to say, Wichita. Yeah, Wichita in Park mm. City, Kansas. Yeah, who... there was a big lull in his killings, mm-hmm. right? That's yes. like a big thing about him. Yeah, is that, like, I remember... 
Yeah, I, I remember him getting arrested in in 2005. Like, I remember, like, the Red Siren, like, Drudge Report headline that, like, they caught the BTK killer. And he was just this, mm-hmm. like, very mild-mannered, like, family man who was like, a Cub Scout leader and active in his church and just kind of a normal middle American guy. But then – and then yeah. he, like, immediately confessed to it all. It was like, yep, I totally did all these things. And so I – never really obviously like at the time like never really it just assumed it was another crazy like serial killer from the 70s and 80s that got caught eventually but now of course we're we're all living in a post you know programmed to kill pilled state of mind these days and so you have to one i wonder about all of these famous serial killers basically to what extent something else could have been going on um i did kind of glance over just his like his wikipedia summary to see if anything really jumped out but i mean the one thing i will i i feel obliged to mention is that he uh served in the united states air force from 1966 to 1970 and according to i guess i don't let me see what the source is maybe according to himself um oh yeah because he released a book i guess in 2019 but i guess he claimed that from a young age young age he harbored sadistic sexual fantasies about torture uh torturing trapped and helpless women he also exhibited zoo sadism by torturing killing and hanging small animals he acted out sexual fetishes for voyeurism autoerotic asphyxiation and cross-dressing little uh you know dress to kill he often spied on female neighbors wow this does sound like a twisted de palma movie he often spied on female neighbors while dressed in women's clothing including women's underwear that he had stolen and masturbated with ropes or other bindings around his arms and neck and uh, yeah so i guess you know he but he kept all these things um well hidden and was very normal he was a staff sergeant in the air force he was awarded the good conduct medal and the small arms expert marksmanship ribbon and the national defense service medal those none of those sound particularly i do see oh okay all right i'll i'll give you this here looking at the source btk suspect served in alabama now, wouldn't we want to bet that maybe he was in Huntsville, Alabama, where all the Nazis were? He served a year there, good conduct, he was clean cut, he did well, he was just a regular soldier. Interesting, Raider's military record has been the subject of intense interest since Charlie Otero told the AP in December that he believed his parents and two siblings were strangled by BTK in 1974 because of something his father did while serving in the Air Force. And mm, I guess according to yeah, according to records obtained by FOIA, that would be Raider, I guess the angle yeah, because I was trying to figure out like you know his victims like whether because it seemed like yeah they were mostly they were mostly women at first you know like a string of yes three, yes three women. yeah nothing jumped um, out at me at first that made me think that these people were connected to anything but l- get a load of this right here tell me if this sounds interesting according to records Raiders tour of duty took him to bases throughout the United States and overseas. He was active duty from August 1966 to August 1970 and a reservist until June 1972. In February 1967, he was stationed at Brookley Air Force Base in Mobile, Alabama, where he worked on an antenna system installation and maintenance, his records show. In 1968, Raider was based at Kadena uh, Air Force Base in Okinawa and months later went to Tachikawa Air Base in Japan. So that's a, the, the Oswald spent some time in Japan. That jumps to mind. And his last assignment was in Denver, where his reserve unit was headquartered, but Raider was never actually based there. 
Police in, Mo in Mobile are now trying to find old case files to see if any unsolved murders match the BTK uh, killing. And I guess that's it. So Brooklyn Air Force Base, I don't know if that's, uh, that's in Mobile, so I guess maybe it's not the same one. As uh, I guess it's a, it's closed it closed down in 1969 actually Brooklyn Air Force Base and let me see if there are any Nazis there uh, interesting it was I I believe that McDill Air Force Base in Tampa which is where JSOC is headquartered nowadays this base moved to Tampa so it was a supply base for the Air Material Command in the southeastern United States let me see come on where are you Nazis. Uh, <laughs> this guy I'm was a real to... freak like i'm just reading some you know because i looked up some of his other you know victims trying to see like what the uh the questioner who was it it's drew time was uh implying with the sort of intelligence connections and the descriptions of like the murders that he committed i guess that he provided upon his arrest are quite gruesome uh yeah he yeah they was are. a complete sicko pretty pretty awful so mm -hmm. yeah uh if he was programmed to kill they they did well quite, there uh, was that there him. was that uh, one story i'm forgetting what book it was in i think it might have been in tom o'neill's chaos about the young air force guy that just like abducted and and like raped and murdered a kid in the mid i might have even been in kansas or Missouri or some it was in the middle of the country somewhere in maybe like the 1950s and the guy was just like completely stunned and had like no memory of doing it and was like completely like blacked out into some kind of trance and like went and did this and I, I think it was Tom O'Neill that postulated like hmm this is like a few years after MK Ultra really kicked into high gear and maybe they were trying to program people to kill and maybe this guy you know this is like an unintended consequence or maybe it was like an intended who knows but he postulated like yeah that was a really bizarre case and uh maybe they were you know you always had to wonder with anybody that was like serving in the military at this time like did something did, were they put through any kind of you know experimental program there was that article from the mid-70s i think it was in the sunday times in london about the navy doctor that claimed that they had an entire screening program for basically uh, testing out enlisted soldiers for being you know programmable to kill basically like did they have pre-existing sadistic tendencies or antisocial personality tendencies that could be maybe exploited and you know as we talked about in like the hypnosis episode like there's like one factor is a susceptibility maybe to like you know hypnotic induction and then maybe another one is like a propensity for like antisocial behavior so if btk killer is telling the truth that he had the classic serial killer thing going on when he was a child like torturing animals and stuff like that would would that perhaps have been discovered while he was serving in the military and then you know because he sounds like according to that doctor whose name i forget he said you know basically like it sounds like uh dennis raider was like an ideal candidate for that kind of program of being like a program to kill uh assassin because he was already like fucked up somehow and like sadistic and you know i think they would do things like it's very clockwork orange where that he said where they would show them you know video like gruesome videos and like hook them up to like a little machine or like you know the parallax view and test their kind of like 
you know, biophysical like responses to the stimuli and their emotional response to the stimuli. And, you know, I guess the more comfortable you were with it, the better of a candidate you were, you know, because you had, you know, you were, you were a sicko. So I don't know. At the same time, I, I, I don't quite see. It seems like he did it because this is all based on DNA evidence. Mm-hmm. So I kind of would assume that... <laughs> well, two things that stand out to me are, one, like, the fact that his first murders, like, uh, even though uh, maybe the ones that are more famous uh, because of their gruesomeness and his description of them are, like, you know, killings of young women, like, in their 20s, mm-hmm. uh, that he committed, like, in, like, first in 1974 and then two in 77. His actual first murders that, uh, you know, are ascribed to him are all on one day and it was of that whole family you know yeah the uh, otero yeah yeah exactly which is interesting odd uh yeah like uh, because usually he would kill like one person at a time so that's kind of unusual like it does stand out uh if i don't know if anybody else had that connection i mean those are the only those include the only male victims that he had was that family you know the young boy yes and the man joseph otero so yeah and then he killed again like a few months later then he stopped for like you know Three years. several years started again yeah then he killed like a little spurt in the mid 80s uh killed mm-hmm. two people and then he killed one last person a 62 year old woman in 1991 so mm-hmm. it's interesting that his pattern kind of changed. I mean, it's not outside the realm of just uh, what a psycho would do, but it is odd that, like, you know, I mean, I guess these people, serial killers, one, like, the idea about them is that they're huge narcissists and, like, they demand, like, credit and attention for what they're doing. But mm-hmm. the fact that, like, you know, it was a cold case, he hadn't been caught, he had gotten away with it, he hadn't killed anyone for a decade, and then suddenly he just started sending letters, and that, like, led to his arrest. I mean, I mean, yeah. like, again, that does fit the pathology, but it's a little bit odd. Uh, uh, it, it is a little bit odd, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, did he want to, yeah, get caught? Uh, his his court-appointed psychologist, Robert Mendoza, diagnosed him with narcissistic, antisocial, and obsessive-compulsive personality disorders. He observed that Raider has a grandiose sense of self, a belief that he is special, and therefore entitled to special treatment, a pathological need for attention and admiration, a preoccupation with maintaining right rigid order and structure, and a complete lack of empathy for his victims. I mean, I guess he did at his sentencing. He he read like a rambling, like thirty minute please execute me statement, like apologizing. But I guess it it didn't strike people. I do kind of remember that of like him. He was almost like unique among serial killers for really going into like saying what he did or like acknowledging mm-hmm. it but yeah i guess a lot of people read it as like again yeah, like a kind of grandiose posturing yeah yes like mm-hmm. he kind of enjoyed like re- repeating Shocking in detail everything the, he did yeah, the stories mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. right even though it was in a very i think a kind of like a wist you know regretful tone or something i'm such a sicko blah 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 you know and that kind of mm-hmm. thing so it's hard to say it's hard to say with btk yeah yeah, the whole, like, the attribution of his name, like, the um, the fine torture kill, killer, mm-hmm. it's very insane. It is interesting that, like, he never killed anyone, like, while he was in the Air Force, like, they looked into it to try to find these murders, but 
he didn't i guess you know it was the same idea that he would have taken credit for whatever he did so yeah, yeah there was also there was a little bit of a like disagreement that i guess the associated press cited an anonymous source alleging raider had confessed to other murders in addition to those with which he had been connected uh, the Sedgwick County District Attorney denied this, but refused to say whether Raider made any confessions or if investigators were looking into Raider's possible involvement in more unsolved killings. But on March 5th, news sources claimed to have verified by multiple sources that Raider had confessed to the 10 murders he was charged with, but no other ones. So, I don't know. There were some rumors floating around that he was saying that he was involved in other things, but then that got kind of, like, shut down real quick. And... Yeah, so I don't know. You could take you could take the district attorney at their word, but you could also wonder if, like, they moved in to like I don't know. They gave him like a sodium amytal shot or like rehypnotized him and like, all right, stop talking about the other ones. It's odd that you know uh, the National Personal Records Center woman Ursula Soto said uh, his service was very much clean cut. He did well. He was just a regular soldier. Just huh. a regular soldier. Okay, yeah. you know what though? Here's one other thing, uh, one other source here. This is from 2018, but a little more up our alley. Kansas BTK serial killer Dennis Raider said, "Quote: A demon within me made him murder." Oh, so here we go. Okay, here we go again. Like demons are chill. Uh, They're your friend. Uh, yeah, he uh, he said. Let's see. Dennis Raider, a church-going family man who murdered ten people, including two children, over a span of three decades, opened up has opened up about what drove him to kill. I guess there was a new ox- there was an oxygen documentary called Snaps, notorious BTK serial killer in 2018. That might be interesting to watch. But I guess there was a never heard interview with Raider as he recounted his childhood and heinous crimes. Some family members of Raider's victims, as well as investigators and those who knew Raider, also came forward to speak out. The former code inspector and church president, uh, yeah, pled guilty in 2005. Where's his the uh, pictures where's his that demon like thing? he took of himself? Like, oh, I mean, I googled mask. that, and I, this audit, yeah, horrifying. Oh horrifying. my god, yeah, wow, uh, that's I, I'm yeah. looking at it right now. It's fucking creepy. Oh my god, that's terrifying. Yeah, um, there might be a demon inside him. Yeah, and apparently he would do a lot of like mask stuff. Uh, in the documentary, Raider claimed it was Factor X that drove him to kill. I personally think, and I know it's not very Christian, but I actually think it's a demon that's within me, he said. At some point in time, it entered me when I was young, and it basically controlled me. Well, wow. Uh, I mean, emerge. on the one hand, you could say this guy is just making up some kind of excuse. You know, I guess he was, he was a... a publicly very christian so maybe he's offloading his responsibility onto a demon but at the same time i mean ugh, like one way or another yeah it does seem like there was a demon inside of him you know i mean it doesn't mean he's he shouldn't be punished but... um the name of the demon or of the force or whatever is very eerie and odd factor x uh, yeah, that is very. That sounds almost scientific. He also he had something else. Yeah, that, it sounds uh, like that, something that he would be like injected with. Like uh, yeah. yeah, he uh, he also had X. a creepy. He has a he had a creepy word. He called for, the serial killer inside him the Minotaur. Uh, hmm. That's wow. Not okay. Yeah. No. He when he was planning um, the murder of Marine Hedge in 1985, he planned and like bought all these materials and stuff the, to prepare for it, and he called his plan Project Cookie. I don't know why, but the idea that he was calling it like a project like is is sus. I don't know. Like like um, like almost like an operation. So he thought that BTK killer 
called it Factor X and Minotaur? Uh, yes. The serial killer inside, he said he drew a distinct line between his normal life and the times when he went dark. As a kid, the sight of chickens waiting to be slaughtered aroused him. Later, he fantasized about tying women down onto train tracks and masturbated to his father's book about the Lonely Hearts Killer. All of these traits belong to the Minotaur, his personification of the sexual impulses and violent tendencies that made a serial killer. He argues that he started out as a white hat, but was periodically dragged to the dark side. That divide was apparent hmm. even in the way that he wrote his letters. Most of the correspondence was boring daily log kind of stuff, says Dr. Ramslin. All of a sudden, you can feel that you're suddenly in Minotaur territory. It's almost like you're paddling at the surface of the water and suddenly something pulls you down. Hmm. Yikes. That is yes. very weird. His narcissistic claim- personality led him to imagine himself as kind of a spy, says Dr. Ramslin, which contributed both really? to his need of secrecy and layers in their communication and his sense of invulnerability, which eventually led to his capture. Uh, he loved to read true crime and detective magazines. Yeah, I'm reading this Rolling Stone piece about, I guess, oh, yeah. Confessions yeah, of I a Serial Killer, which is the big book that recently came out, yeah, about him. Uh, that is a lot. So he thought he was a little bit of a spy. There's a Factor X that unleashed the Minotaur, which was basically an uh, a, a, an altar, kind of. It was like a, a kind of, mm-hmm. it sounds like a bit of a split personality kind of thing. Yeah, well, what she yeah, said all was the that traits. it was... Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's uh, the combination of unique sexual impulses, desire for fame, and delusions of a spy-like double life, intersecting with his fantasy life, and most practically, the opportunity to commit the murders. Crucial, though, was that first family of four. When that first incident occurred, she says, he might have decided that it really wasn't all it's cracked up to be and thought, I don't think I'll do this again, but instead it was highly exciting. That ensured he would kill again. I don't think he told me everything, she says, and I don't think he always told me the truth. But I think I got Raider pretty well. Uh, so that's yeah. her idea of what Factor X was. Yeah, he created a distinct and most professional language around his murders. His victims were projects. A murder was a hit. The act of killing someone was putting them down. He worked with Dr. Ramsland because he wanted to uncover the thing inside him that made him, quote, go dark, an element he calls Factor X. But like most serial killers who talk to the press, quote, he doesn't like that it wasn't that hard. He wants it to be this intense, deep mystery that no one will ever quite access. So instead, she helped pick himself apart. Um, they watched documentaries and analyses of other serial killers, try to give him the vocabulary and, fr- and frame of reference to create his guided biography. She does say, I don't think he always told me the truth, but I think I got Raider pretty well. Um, right. So I don't yeah. know. Maybe she did, but yeah. at the same time, mm. yeah, there's a well, little bit know. of a Factor, weirdness yeah, here. Factor X, Minotaur, I don't know. Yeah. Very odd. Very Minotaur odd. Minotaur is um, in, like, uh, did, Kenneth Anger made a movie called The Minotaur, didn't he? I think yeah, he or did. Like, uh, yeah. It was involving the Minotaur. It was like the Minotaur in space. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly. a very interesting image. Uh, it's the idea, you know, of course, like the labyrinth is like a very popular sort of spiritual uh, idea, you know, very provocative. It's an unusual thing to choose. It does have that sort of suggestion of layers, you know, I wonder why, like, uh, I mean, saying that there's a demon inside of you isn't very creative, but specifically classifying it as a minotaur, uh, even Factor yeah. X isn't really that, you know, uh, evocative, but minotaur is. They also, yeah. um, one interesting thing uh, that was noted in another article is that he had, quote, afterlife plans for his female victims, including one who was to be his mistress and another who would act as his bondage servant. That reminds me a lot 
of that M- that well uh, and that yeah the mk guy in the geraldo special that like killed his friend so that he could have ten thousand souls in hell you know yeah, that's, that's like a I common mean. thing with c- serial killers they have this strange occultist belief that anybody they murder will become like their slave in the afterlife which is a very yeah. specific belief to have i don't think it necessarily you know what i mean like that's a very specific kind of spiritual belief to have it's not Mm -hmm. just like a thing you could be a sadistic killer and just love like killing people i would assume and it doesn't have to have this extra like spiritual component of like it sounds like you made a pact with like the devil basically because who who, who's going to give you this power to you know be uh to enslave people like after you die or whatever it does mirror like beliefs about like you know i mean usually like it's a bit different because it's not like the conversion of like random people into slaves like uh you know it's simply like killing like uh interring one slaves with one uh you know Mm. to so they'll continue to serve you in the afterlife but that that was a common relatively common practice historically like by kings and the various civilizations you know like uh, yeah but going out and murdering somebody so that you could collect their souls so they could like serve you in hell is something that i feel like was not necessarily a big phenomenon until like the 70s and 80s and 90s of like serial killer the golden age of serial killers of that earlier idea yeah no for sure i mean the one person i can think of is jeffrey dahmer although I'm not sure, like, if his idea was that they would serve him in hell or in the afterlife, or if he thought, like, he would make them into, like, mind-controlled zombie slaves in this life. Uh, similar idea, but maybe not exactly I guess the same. So. But, I mean, he uh, killed them, so that... He did kill them, seems, but I think that, like... like, before that, he wanted to, like, have them, like, be zombies. Uh, like, he had, like, you know, when he was giving them sleeping pills and, like, sedatives and... Oh, okay, yeah. Their when he... bodies and things like that. Uh, yeah, and that yeah. he was another uh, military veteran stationed in West Germany, I think, in the 80s. Yeah. And it's I just, mean, like, where are these people getting these ideas? Those who were in the militaries, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. So he or, or Ramirez, you know, victims, kind of Donald yeah, Ramirez like their heads mm. and filled their head he, with bleach. Wow, this is the Trump uh, COVID cure. But the experiment okay. wasn't successful, and both his victims died. Uh, that was Ugh. how he was trying to create sex slaves. Um, Jesus. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just mm. they they like straight. Whenever you see a phenomenon like this rise up, and then suddenly it's like, oh look, like they all have these the same exact like completely insane beliefs that are not necessarily like rooted in our culture (laughs) like it's not something you would just like this is before like movies came out where maybe that was something that was said like it it was just kind of out of nowhere and you know between the military influence and between some of these people actually doing it explicitly like saying like yeah i did this for satan so that he would give me power in hell you know yeah. like wh- who was disseminating these ideas because according to like alistair but crowley okay, and like anton lavey and michael aquino dance for him and yeah he, yeah you know, i'll kill him and then you worry. can just uh, kill him and then become satan yeah exactly yeah it's That's easy cool. not a big deal it's easy totally cool. uh, yeah. don't worry about okay. it um there's definitely uh, a lot there you know the jeffrey dahmer thing makes you think of like the serpent in the rainbow and that kind of idea of like using a certain potion to make someone a zombie but of course yeah there's all these 
It is the sort of uh, like yeah, metaphysical beliefs of serial killers are intriguing. There was a, one guy who thought that he had to prevent earthquakes, like, uh, hmm. and so he killed people to like prevent earthquakes. Yeah, it was I never Herbert Mullen. Yeah, uh, he was he killed thirteen people in California in the early seventies, and he claimed wow. that they prevented earthquakes. Yes, it's uh, a very California-specific pathology, but yes, still, he, yeah, hmm. interesting interesting he was later to claim that the victim was jonah from the bible and that he had sent mullen a telepathic message saying pick me up and throw me over the boat kill me so that others will be saved hmm. Hmm. okay, okay. Wow. Uh, right. uh, hmm. i mean it sounds like maybe somebody who has a split personality and they're like trying uh, to well, warn he everybody was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia um okay he believed wow. that the vietnam war had produced enough american death to forestall earthquakes as a sort of blood sacrifice to nature but wow. that with the war winding down by late 1972, he would need to start killing people in order to have enough deaths to keep the earthquake away. That is dark. <laughs> that is very yes. dark. Yes. Uh, he yeah. just also decided to join the U.S. Marines and pass the physical and psychiatric tests. Wow. However, he was refused entry when it was found out that he used drugs. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this wow, this is, this is actually pretty funny. This rejection fueled Mullen's paranoid delusions of conspiracies, behind which he believed was a powerful group of hippies. He was right. <laughs> not wrong. Uh, not wrong. He was not wrong. That was the yeah. most sane thing that he believed. Uh, I went, well, he was in California, so I wonder what mental hospitals he got ran through. This is this is uh, interesting. Eight days after his arrest, a magnitude or a 5.8 magnitude earthquake struck the Point Mugu area in Southern California, causing an estimated one million dollars in damage. <laughs> <laughs> all right well you know that would possibly be an interesting episode to explore too uh yeah but yeah anyway yeah. Um, anyways um right. okay all right i think we so can... hopefully we did enough on that uh btk situation to assassinate intel types i don't know it doesn't seem like most of them were i don't know if the oteras how much but could be i don't know anyway so yeah we'll I, nothing uh, we can see now but we, yeah we might come back to it yeah you want to uh, uh, read number yeah, six sure. any deeper thoughts on timothy mcveigh slash oklahoma city the lesser timothy cleary clearly i guess he's talking yeah. about timothy leary uh, leary yeah. of course so yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. well talk about program uh, to kill um uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, program uh, to yeah. bomb I yeah. I mean I, I think this is another one yeah we might punt a little bit because I think we definitely would want to do an episode on this whole saga at one point because it does mm-hmm. involve a lot of these like uh, very slippery questions about people that were in the military that go off and do crazy shit and then mm-hmm. you know get uh you know executed for being terrorists and all that stuff I think there's a lot of sus things going on with McFay. I mean, how much do you know about it? Do you remember it, uh, by the way? Do you remember it happening? A bit. Where, where were you on that day in... I forget when it was, actually. Uh, it was... Uh, it, I don't know if I was, like, you know, sapient at the time. Uh, when did it happen? Mm. I think that it Actually, April in... 19th, 1995, a day before Hitler's birthday. Mm, uh, mm. 1995 it was, so... Yeah, yeah. 95. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would have been at the time like uh, six. So uh-huh. <laughs> I don't really remember. I guess I was a little older, so I do remember it happening and it being like a big deal. And then they yeah. caught the psycho. I remember when they executed him in two thousand one, right before nine eleven. Kind of really a passing of the torch of the the terrorism thing, you know. 
got him out of the yeah. way right before 9-11. And, uh, oh, yeah, his execution was carried out a considerably shorter time than most inmates uh, awaiting the death penalty. So they really wanted to just get him get him out of there. You know, yeah, well, don't, you had a don't bunch of, like, I mean, it's not, like, super unusual for someone, you know, in his position to lodge such complaints, or especially with someone of his sort of political uh, alignment uh, and beliefs, such as, like, you know, I think he was, like, a Turner Diaries guy, like, going by sort of uh, his, uh, the official line on him, and I think probably that is true, but, uh, yeah, he did have some interesting ideas that he floated, like, I think that he said that he had gotten, like, an anal probe from the military, uh, oh right, yeah yeah there's like a that, lot of yeah. weird things he said about because he did go through he served in the gulf war and then um aspired to join the special forces much like another american <laughs> american hero uh, uh edward snowden um like mm-hmm. went into special forces training but allegedly washed out on the second day of his 21 day assessment and then was honorably discharged um so you know uh, yeah i don't know where he said he was anal pro by the government but there was a lot of oh yeah here it was yeah he complained when he was visiting friends after being in the army in decker michigan he reportedly complained the army had implanted a microchip into his butt so the government could keep track of him and yeah i don't know he was an incel he became an obsessive gambler and i guess uh I don't know. It seems like he he got really mad for the government coming after him for like back taxes, and you know, go, went down this path. Uh, he drove down to Waco during the siege to show his support, and distributed pro gun rights right. literature and bumper stickers. Yeah, that is very sus. That he's just like happens to show up like to this like complete honeypot of like FBI and ATF activity, and is like, hey guys, right. well, like I'm a. Well, that was part of his motive right like uh according to him was that it was like sort of vengeance for waco uh that was like kind of what he was that was that's the exoteric official narrative of why he did what he did Mm -hmm. yeah but i think there's Mm -hmm. so much more there's a few different ways of like that people have looked at mcveigh differently one is that he was some kind of like undercover army person that was maybe i don't know kind of either if not mk'd then like sheep dipped into the sort of patriot movement and was kind of like oswald was like running around doing stuff as a kind of like undercover person for the government but then maybe got set up to be this terrorist and things like that um that's one way that people look at him and i guess the other way would be that or that yeah he was uh like maybe consciously going undercover or he was like some kind of mk like program to kill subject i guess those are the two things i'm getting at um so in either way he's a suspicious character and you know he he's one of these guys that like shows up and starts just talking about how much he wants to shoot down the government black helicopters and does anybody know where i can get like a stinger missile you know like that kind of guy <laughs> is what it kind of sounds like <laughs> yeah and yes. he spent a lot of time in um in uh he spent a lot of time in elohim city which i think was a kind of like white nationalist like patriot El- compound elohim in city uh, uh like- yes Okay. Yes. Uh, I believe Elohim City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Elohim City, uh, which is in Oklahoma, and was, yeah, the home of the Christian identity movement, which was kind of like a 
quasi-Nazi right. yeah, sort of... Was, is like a name of God or an attribute of God in, you uh-huh. know, the... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it, they also had ties to the Order, which was one of the most, like, nefarious uh, underground kind of neo-Nazi organizations in the 1980s. And, mm-hmm. you know, they did a lot of armed robberies, and then they murdered Alan Berg, the Jewish radio talk show host in Denver, in 1984 that's yeah, kind of what they're most like famous a big for hub for like all sorts of insane like white supremacist like christian yeah. identity type maniacs uh yeah exactly um, exactly and there was another guy this is the, the like i said we'll we'll probably do a really deep um dive one day but there's one person that like doesn't ever pop up i might have mentioned him before i i don't even think he like pops up in Timothy McVeigh's Wikipedia article, which is kind of ridiculous. But there was a German guy who was an associate of Timothy McVeigh's and was a was the former head of security for Elohim City, a guy named Andreas Karl Strassmeyer. And basically, the thing about him is that he he was traipsing around the United States in the eighties and nineties. And he just so happy he was from Germany and uh, from a family. This is quite a loaded statement known for his its right wing nationalist sympathies. I wonder what that could mean. Uh, he was the son of Gunther Strassmeyer, the chief of staff to German Chancellor Helmut Kohl. And his grandfather was also a co-founder of the Nazi Party. <laughs> so hmm. he was uh, he had served in the German army in the 70s into the 80s and uh, for some reason joined the British Welsh Welsh Guard. And uh, then moved to Washington, D.C. to pursue a career with the U.S. Department of Justice. According to Strassmeyer, he had hoped to work for the operations section of the Drug Enforcement Administration so that, you know, Klaus Barbie's cocaine shipments would get intercepted. His efforts to obtain a career within the federal government were aided by Vincent Petrusky, a retired U.S. Air Force colonel who had apparently met Strassmeyer's father while he, Petrusky, was stationed in Berlin. In, in interviews, Strassmeyer's referred to Vincent Petrusky as, quote, a former CIA guy my father had known. Petrusky confirms he had assisted Andreas Strassmeyer in finding such a job, but denies having any connection to the CIA. Strassmeyer moved to, where else, Houston, Texas, in 1986, where he started working as a salesman for a computer company. During this time, he became involved with the Texas Light Infantry Militia before eventually getting expelled due to speculation from members that Strassmeyer was a government agent. Afterwards, he became active in right-wing and neo-Nazi circles, where he eventually met his future attorney, Kirk Lyons. Um, he also claimed to spend some time in Knoxville, Tennessee, where he obtained a state driver's license. I guess in 1991, his lawyer, Kirk Lyons, introduced him to Elohim City. A year later, Strassmeyer moved there and became the chief of security and weapons training. According to Lyons, Strassmeyer hoped to marry an Elohim City woman and gain permanent resident status in the United States. Um, he struck a friendship there with Michael William Brescia, a member of the Aryan Republican uh, Army, and also worked as a, uh, oh, sorry, no, while working as a confidential informant for the ATF, Elohim City resident Carol Howe informed her agency handler about Andreas Strassmeyer and how he would frequently talk about, quote, blowing up federal buildings and using, quote, direct action against the U.S. government. At the time, Carol Howe was unaware of Strassmeyer's full name and simply knew him as Andy the German. And after the OKC bombing, Strassmeyer fled the compound with fellow Elohim City residents Pete and Tony Ward. It does say here that Timothy McVeigh 
telephoned Elohim City just minutes after he had reserved the rider rental van that was used to blow up the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. Uh, and the phone was answered by Joan Millar, the daughter of Robert G. Miller, the founder. And uh, I guess, yeah, okay. So there's a relationship with McVeigh nobody knows. Information with various sources regarding the relationship between the two tend to conflict with one another, making it difficult to determine such an aspect. However, it is known that Andreas Strassmeyer and Timothy McVeigh first met at a gun show in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 93. Robert Miller quickly expelled Andreas Strassmeyer from Elohim City. Soon after, he became aware the FBI was looking at Strassmeyer for possible ties to McVeigh in the bombing. And last but not least, notes from a 1997 FBI investigation state that sometimes Time after the bombing, CIA pilot Dave Halloway flew Andreas Strassmeyer out of the United States. While that same report records that Strassmeyer was flown to Berlin, many have speculated he was instead flown to Mexico. However, in a letter to the McCurtain Gazette from Strassmeyer's attorney, Kirk Lyons, he says his, his client's sudden departure from the U.S. was aided by members of Germany's elite counterterrorism unit, GSG-9. So, that's a lot, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's like a German, a West German grandson of a founder of the Nazi party whose dad was like Helmut Kohl's chief of staff traipsing around, like hanging out with CIA agents, trying to work for the Department of Justice, for the DEA in like drug interception. And then like hanging out at this Nazi compound and being like the chief of security, maybe being a federal informant and then like piecing out either with the help of the CIA or the GSG-9 right after the attacks. Uh, I don't know. kind of doesn't look good, right? Like, uh, going off about, like, blowing up federal buildings and stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, by the... Yeah. I, I do remember Carol Howe was, like, the one informant that was, like, around that was able to kind of... um, Yeah, actually, she... I guess, you know, wow, she's classified as, like, a, a key figure in Oklahoma City bombing conspiracy theories. Following her claim that she informed authorities of a right-wing extremist plan to blow up a federal building in Oklahoma a few months before the Oklahoma City bombing. So, like, okay, so you had, like, the informant basically saying that, yeah, that this was going to happen. Very much like how the before the 1993 World Trade Center bombing that one of the FBI's informants found out about this plan and told his FBI handlers very insistently that they were going to set off a bomb at the bottom of the World Trade Center. And they're like, oh, very interesting. All right, yeah. And then, like, a month later, the bomb went off. And he was like, what the fuck? Like, you know what I mean? So, yeah, you know, it, it, it really... I mean, of course, we know that there's no such thing as a conspiracy with more than 50 people. That's ontologically mm-hmm. yeah. completely impossible and never Not happens. Yes. But, you know, it's interesting to see how you do have all these informants who often i I don't know seem like well it makes sense right like if you're an informant and you catch wind of something that's going to be like a really big deal for one you're probably afraid that if you don't tell your fbi handlers that something might blow back on you if you knew something about it and didn't say anything but it's funny to see how often the exact opposite kind of ends up happening where it's like these FBI handlers or whoever seem almost inconvenienced and pissed off that you're coming to them, like telling them about an impending attack, particularly if it happens, then they really don't want to fucking hear about it. Right. Mm -hmm. You know? So I think that there's a lot of, I don't know, weirdness uh, here. One interesting thing uh, with Timothy McVeigh is the area 51 uh, connection. Oh, I saw uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, apparently, he would go out there in the same way that he was like, you know, hanging out around Waco. Um, you know, he would also go out to Area 51. And uh, there's a famous story or a w- relatively well known story of him going out there and like, you know, kind of camping out and then seeing a Black Hawk helicopter. And it is kind of unusual that he was able to just like ignore all the like deadly force signs and just hang out there and like. Uh, it says that he approached some of the rent cops and just was like, hi, and they like ignored him and everything, uh, wow. you know, and then he yeah. w- even, uh, you know, he stopped, turned around, looked at the chopper approaching in the distance. Unperturbed, he resumed his hike. The sound of the chopper blades told him the craft was coming up close. Still, he advanced, refusing to be intimidated by the chopper as it passed overhead and swooped in low, hovering in the air 30 yards in front of him. For an instant, he considered taking cover and shooting at the helicopter with his rifle, but he wasn't in a combat mode, not yet. He knew the whole point of sending out a chopper was to frighten him. Most people he knew would have been scared of their wits by a chopper flying that close, but McVeigh really ra- merely raised his free hand and waved to the chopper's crew, taking a little slap at authority. The craft hovered for a second longer, then pitched back and left. McVeigh hiked to the top of the hill and snapped his photographs. Later, as Very he drove away from Area 51, the white Jeep, which, uh, which he had seen earlier, fell in behind his car. He was certain that the rent-a-cops were running a license plate check on him. No matter, he had accomplished his mission, challenging the government's authority and satisfying his curiosity in one fell swoop. He found no evidence of UFOs, but his interest in unidentified flying objects never flagged. Years later, on death row, he would watch the movie Contact six times over a two-day period. Fascinated by the scientist played by Jodie Foster, who makes contact with an outer space alien in the image of her long-dead father. Uh, it's very odd that he was able to, like, uh, infiltrate... Uh, yeah... It's odd that also, he was yeah, the John Hinckley situation. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. John like, Hinckley, uh, for sure. Yeah, it's just like it's every, weird that all he was of them able are obsessed to just, with like, walk onto Area 51 and nothing bad happened to him. But there's a little bit more, actually, because Michael Fortier, who, like, eventually was, like, you know, uh, convicted of, like, not warning people uh, about what Timothy McVeigh was planning, his, like, old army buddy, he told the FBI that in February 1995, while on their way back to Kingman from gun shows in Nevada and Utah, he and McVeigh made two trips to Area 51. One in the middle of the night and the second trip in the day. Fortier said in the second trip they saw an older man with a young boy going to Area 51 and later McVeigh sent him pictures he'd taken on one of his solo excursions there. A different and perhaps more important story about McVeigh's trips, this is from Aberration in the Heartland of the Real. Oh, I yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I haven't read it, but I've heard a lot about the, this book. Yes. Um, got some good stuff uh, so, in there. Yeah, the the author writes, Kevin Nicholas, a friend of McVeigh's in Michigan, told this story. Uh, He described McVeigh as a wanderer who would get a job out west in Arizona and Nevada for six months or so, quit, return to Michigan, then leave again. This pattern continued from 1993 to 1995, during which McVeigh found time to attend major gun shows with the country, selling guns under one of many aliases he used, Tim Tuttle being the only Mm -hmm. one Nicholas could remember. While on the road, McVeigh sometimes called Nicholas, and while a guest at Nicholas's house, made several long-distance calls, but would never use a cordless telephone, believing that the frequency could be intercepted. Nicholas advised the FBI that if they wanted to find John Doe number 2, they should look near the Nevada-Arizona border, as McVeigh had told him that he and others, whose identities Nicholas did not know, had a stockpile of guns, ammunition, and survival supplies stashed in a desert near Area 51. Yeah, and apparently he went to arrange a meeting with a guy in near Area 51 for a gun deal who he suspected was either FBI or ATF. And he didn't respond to the letter directly, but he went to the predetermined place stated in the letter and through binoculars, watched to see who arrived, but I guess no one came. Yeah, mm-hmm. just it's so us. much shady business um, going on with all these gun dealers and these like patriot groups and there's like ATF uh, informant. ATF was really on like a weird like 
tear in the 90s of like remember i mean i maybe you were a little bit too young to remember that but like i remember it even being like a big joke in the beavis and butthead movie in like 94 mm-hmm. 95 and i think bill clinton actually makes beavis and butthead like honorary atf agents and they're like oh cool like alcohol tobacco yeah. firearms like eh, cool yeah you right. know? i do remember I, this from the beavis and butthead movie and they're excited yeah i think that that like involves like doing those things or like you yeah. know like uh, <laughs> yeah playing with exactly and, and, and yeah so it's right. a little bit like odd that uh, maybe like the waco thing and the atf and everything else uh kind of like blackened their name a little bit and you know a lot of people didn't like the atf but then i guess after 9 11 i mean they're still around but you, you just never hear about them anymore now i guess maybe they were folded more into like the department of homeland security so now you'd hear more about dhs um but still it's like yeah just such a weird spooky milieu and I guess, you know, McVeigh did do an interview with 60 Minutes in 2000 and I guess had an opportunity to explain himself before he was executed. And Mm -hmm. I'm just looking through it right now, you know, talking about the Gulf War. uh, He said, I went over there hyped up just like everyone else. What I experienced, though, was an entirely different ballgame. And being face to face close with these people in personal contact you realize they're just people like you. He also did claim that he had been ordered to execute, like, surrendering prisoners, like, during the invasion of Iraq in, like, 1991, and that he was, like, horrified by this, um, which is, I don't know, something you don't hear about. Um, I guess he got mad because of Ruby Ridge in 92. He did not say he was innocent of the bombing in Oklahoma City. He says, I came to terms with my mortality in the Gulf War. I guess in a 1997 interview, he refused to say if he was the bomber or knew who he was. And uh, asked. And then he was asked if it is acceptable to use violence against the government, to which McVeigh said, if government is the teacher, violence would be an acceptable option. What did we do to Sudan? What did we do to Afghanistan? Belgrade? What are we doing with the death penalty? It appears they use violence as an option all the time. Uh, hard to hard to disagree with that that right there. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, like more woke than Bernie Sanders was in the nineties. Like more concerned <laughs> well, with like bombing yeah, Belgrade uh, than Bernie was. Uh, so asked if he would do anything differently if he could relive his life. McVeigh said, "I thought about that quite a few times. I think anybody in life says, I wish I could could have gone back and done this differently, done that differently. There are moments, but not one that stands out." Uh, okay. Oh, and you know, he did have a neighbor on the cell block in Colorado, and who was Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. And McVeigh said about him, this is kind of interesting what McVeigh says about Kaczynski is, quote, far left, while he is far right politically. Quote, I found that in a way that I didn't realize that we were much alike in that all we ever wanted or all we wanted out of life was the freedom to live our own lives however we chose to. So he sees a lot in common with Ted Kaczynski, the MK Ultra subject. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. Another. Yeah. Uh. He. Yeah. Pioneer of horseshoe theory. Yeah. I don't know if I would always yeah. say that, like. I mean. I guess like. I don't know if like. Uh, the. I don't know if Kaczynski is really far left. I guess it, in terms of being like an extreme anarcho primitivist, maybe. Um. But. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I don't know. There's just a lot. Mm. I, I think it sounds like he was cagey up until maybe his finer, final interview with actually saying that he did it. Yeah, mm. but uh, that's something we could probably explore. Uh, something interesting a, I stumbled uh, upon uh, in this is uh, 
uh, suggestion. It's in this book, uh, Invoking the Beyond, the Kantian, the Kantian Rift, Mythologized Men uh, Menaces, and the Quest uh, for the New Man. Uh, this talks a little mm -hmm. about uh, Timothy McVeigh, and it has an interesting theory that, uh, relating to something that we've talked about a little bit before, uh, the Nephilim. It talks about the popularity of the doctrine of the Nephilim in, among these Christian identity groups, and it kind of suggests that, uh, you know, maybe this doctrine is something that's been uh, cooked up by intelligence agencies uh, to manipulate these types of uh, groups. I guess Paul D. Collins and Philip D. Collins maybe have uh, two brothers or something, but uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But they suggest that, yeah, they said the Oklahoma City bombing provides compelling evidence that criminalized portions of the government and intelligence community, as we've just talked about, have periodically used useful idiots in the Christian entity subculture. The early history of Christian identity's formation also seems to suggest that the belief system is little more than a synthetic theological construct carefully crafted to turn people of faith into fanatics that can be manipulated. There are strange and disturbing similarities between Christian identity and the Nephilim doctrine, with its curious assertion that Noah's survival was attributable to good genes and not righteousness, the Nephilim doctrine appears to be little more than a new strain of Christian entity that incorporates elements of exotheology. Like Christian entity, the Nephilim doctrine has its ties with intelligence circles. The theory's main proponent, the deceased evangelical Missler, proposed, uh, possessed a background in intelligence work. Missler's old online biography states that he served as a senior analyst with a nonprofit think tank where he conducted projects for the intelligence community and the Department of Defense. Uh, Missler's participation mm. in the CNP also provided him with the opportunity to rub shoulders with other people involved in intelligence. Oliver North, John Singlau, Richard oh, D. Gary uh, okay, are just some okay. of the CNP participants who also oh, this is the, the this is the um, Council for National Policy, right? Yeah, and honestly, that's yeah, it. Right. They're a very I know like, like Recluse on the Farm podcast has talked a lot about CNP as kind of the like right wing. I think we might even get into it when we do our Yankee and Cowboy War episode next uh, mm -hmm. about how like if the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission are kind of the preeminent, the, you know, the, the prevailing think tanks of the Yankees, then the CNP is that equivalent for like the Southwestern sort of cowboy faction of the ruling class. Mm -hmm. and, the, yeah. and they do, they, 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 they're influential, but you never hear about them. They're very low key. Yeah, this seems like an interesting line on the whole uh, giant uh, concept, the idea that it's something that uh, emanates from groups like this, uh, mm, you know, that yeah. uh, it's sort of a combination of intelligence circles and, and theosophy. Makes me think about you know, those one uh, star and two stars that yeah, exactly. you know, are telling you, you know, to keep your eyes keep fixed your on the sky. eyes fixed <laughs> on the, it's the, yeah, the biggest thing we've ever dealt with uh, uh i, I mean yeah. if the shoe fits this it giant also stuff that uh, you and your friend are on to uh yeah. you know. <laughs> oh what was the last thing i was gonna say um it also um oh okay i remember now yeah. yes i, I remember okay the it, it this all this reminded me of that very weird warning that william colby gave to john de camp that he relayed in his book from the early 90s you know, this is like maybe uh, just a couple years before he mysteriously died, but he kind of said like, you know, your your next big investigation, John, after this whole Franklin scandal thing, should be mm -hmm. the Patriot movement, 
they are the greatest national security threat to us right now. They are incredibly dangerous, and you need to get the word out that I'm pretty sure he was saying it in a, in a negative way about these like militias yeah. and stuff like that, that they were some kind of like, I don't know, fascist fifth column that was extremely nefarious and needed to be stopped. But the way he even was saying it kind of had this vibe of like, like oh they're they're gonna do an oklahoma city bombing any day now john so like you better go look at them because they're don't don't they seem dangerous to you it just if you think about them as kind of like feds from the jump that were used for some kind of purpose mm-hmm. or like corralling these like useful idiots into doing terrorist attacks and like this weird nazi is there or like getting everybody juiced up about it then like what <laughs> yeah. is what was bill colby up to kind of like pointing it out so early as like john like this is going to be because it kind of ended up it did end up being like the biggest sensational threat of like the mid 90s was like these crazy groups out there and i mean yeah some of them like were nazis some of them were crazy but there's also like so many so much federal infiltration of these groups that it really kind of makes you wonder well it's interesting like uh yeah i was just thinking about because i was looking up you know i was trying to track down like the source of the like i can't feel god they've killed god my soul is dead like vaccine (laughs) story uh recently and i came like you know across one of the oldest sources for for that i could find was a youtube video from one of the bundies uh and it kind of reminds me of that how there still really are these things like elohim city where they're these like sort of fringe groups that uh you know are kind of uh in their own uh, self-contained community and then like it becomes this bizarre like huge media storm like but at the same time like nothing really happens like and it just kind of continues and like they just gain more visibility yeah. and they become like a way to perpetuate ideas further like mm-hmm. uh and mm-hmm. like they become like a a hub in a larger network like by virtue of having had this sort of like performative exchange i don't know like uh yeah i yeah. haven't the, really the bundy like, thing always struck me as yeah. as just like mm-hmm. a kind of uh media spectacle with like these dumbasses who were i i always did think it was interesting that they were like their bit their big enemy wasn't the atf but blm the bureau of land right, management yeah, the and then how seamlessly like the fear Sasquatch, and the hatred uh, of blm yeah. like within it was yeah, like the same year right, that blm yeah. became a, a, a like a, yeah. a kind of social movement and then they started just using blm as the abbreviation for both and like then yeah. i don't know there's like the weird subconscious conflation of these two things being like two heads of the same hydra it's all just blm you know they're just trying to take your land teach you critical race theory and uh yeah critical you know. race theory yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yes. i don't know um i think uh i think this definitely merits like a very uh, deep dive um this aberration in yes, the heartland of the sure. real um so i mm-hmm. think we will we'll put it on the list yeah. and get to it Appointing you honorary agents in the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Whoa. Alcohol and tobacco? Yeah. Firearms. Cool, huh? Cigarettes and beer kick ass. Yeah, yeah. We're in the Bureau of Beer and Fire. And cigarettes. And maybe some chicks, too. This is gonna be cool. I miss the Russians. I miss Vietnam. Chinese. I miss sympathetic fascist regime. 
move on to number seven from Peter Darkwinter. He asks, would like to hear the host take on the alleged death of Michael Ayatollah Mike Dandrea, who, according to the Iranian press, was one of the passengers on a plane that crashed in Afghanistan in January 2020. I've always found this guy interesting because of all the talk in mainstream news about his, quote, conversion to Islam, his portrayal as the wolf in Zero Dark Thirty, and also the rumors that this guy might not even exist IRL. Thanks. I haven't heard the rumors of his non-existence, although I do remember that he was, like, a very surreptitious figure, you know, for a while. Uh, reports about him would always be under an alias, you know. I remember the article about mm-hmm. him as Roger, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I guess there is. I don't actually recall how he was portrayed in Zero Dark Thirty. Like, I haven't seen that movie in, like, a really long time, and I wasn't uh, paying very close attention the first time I saw it. Um, you know, like I kind of knew what to expect from Zero Dark Thirty. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like I caught it on TV or something at some point. Like I definitely have seen parts of it, but I don't remember like if he's seen like, you know, being this pious Muslim, like my reading this guy is like, not that he's like a super sincere, like ideological convert to Islam. Like it just seems like his wife is Muslim and, uh, in order to marry her, like, uh, you know, it's like in any if anyone is like any kind of even close to a conservative muslim it's usually like you know the the tradition like uh, is that men are who are not muslim are not permitted to marry muslim women so he would have had to like perfunctorily convert in order to marry his wife who i think is uh-huh. rich like yeah, yeah. I was just you know, going into her. Yeah, uh, yeah. Farida Kurimji Dandrea is the daughter of a wealthy Muslim family from Mauritius, uh, or Mauritius um, with Gujarati origins, and is the senior director of Kurimji Group, a business conglomerate owned by her family with holdings including print media, telecommunications, real estate, tourism, financial services, and energy. So it sounds kind of like uh, controls like the commanding heights of the economy. Yeah, that's a uh, very interesting so, like the whole um, idea and like you know i've read like little articles about this guy and like i like you know it, it every no one says that he like prays or anything which is pretty much like the bare minimum well for, he like, is shown in zero dark fun. 30 you know they they people made a lot of hay out of that that basically like there's little cutaways to him like rolling his prayer rug out in his office and like closing the door and like yeah. praying after he's just like ordered a drone strike you know <laughs> it's like oh yeah. it's so complex mm-hmm. he was i, I yeah. apparently really like the godfather so of the u.s drone program like, oh the mystique of like you know uh, but like i'm sure that he isn't like you know in any like obviously you know uh hosan al-zan like you know he's muslim insofar as he's set but like you know uh there's sometimes instrumental reasons why people become like muslim yeah like, oh, yeah like john know, brennan like, and converting and in jeddah you like know it. uh it's <laughs> right of course as we all know well no but that's completely yeah. different because he truly believes in in the ideology of wahhabism and he's committed to yeah bringing it about like any any his, true jesuit you know, like pupil yeah exactly yeah, mm-hmm. he's actually muslim yeah um uh, I, I just wanted yeah, to point out sure. real quick uh, I mean, so i don't forget chillingly perfect arabic uh when he says like salam alaikum uh <laughs> you know yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, um, I, I just, I just want to point out because I feel like this is slightly important because it something just went off in my brain. And the thing about Mauritius that is interesting and relevant is that you know what's not very far from that island is Diego Garcia, mm-hmm. which is you know a, a very high level 
think a formerly kind of a British uh, naval base that is now American and has been. I, I'm pretty sure people there. I think there might have been a CIA black site on Diego Garcia, or it was like a transit point to like trade off people that had been, uh, you know, detainees or whatever. And uh, I do remember one of the the spicier conspiracy theories around the uh mh370 disappearance is that it was like remotely hijacked and flown to diego garcia and then i don't know everybody was killed or whatever um but it's a very spooky high level island so anybody that's like plugged in to the power elite of mauritius is necessarily gonna be in close proximity to uh diego garcia so you know very savvy move to marry like one of the wealthiest people in that country that mm, maintain yes. that you know i don't think they have ownership it, it's basically been given to the united states but that's the closest nation to it i i believe um in the chagos archipelago. yeah and i'm sure that like yeah definitely like that uh her family business is like all up in like all the sus aspects of like the u.s presence in uh mauritius uh so mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, High level US bomber base. Uh and yeah. Yeah. Pretty um like I'm sure her businesses like um, Yeah. You know. Oh here, yeah, here we go. This is relevant. Yeah, there there was a rendition flight refueling admission. Uh several groups claim the military base in Diego Garcia has been used by the US government for transport of prisoners involved in the controversial extraordinary rendition program, which Mike D'Andrea was like intimately involved in leading. An allegation formally reported to the Council of Europe in two thousand seven. Uh, in 2008, British Foreign Secretary David Miliband admitted that two United States extraordinary rendition flights refueled on Diego Garcia in 2002 and was, quote, very sorry that earlier denials were having to be corrected. Um, I guess some other stuff came out with uh, in WikiLeaks during the Cablegate stuff. Also, Diego Garcia was used as a storage section for U.S. cluster bombs as a way of avoiding U.K. parliamentary oversight. So, yeah, like it's it, the whole island is basically a black site. I think it's safe to say. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, there's that about him. As for him dying in January of 2020, I mean, yeah, it's true that Iran, Iran claimed did claim that, that. Yeah. But, you know, I, Iran was in a difficult position where, like, one of their national heroes was murdered uh, and, you know, or killed as an act of war, whatever you want to say. Obviously, very aggressive, like, performative uh, act. Yeah, so they kind of were kind of smarting from that and wanting to claim a bounty of, uh, you know, comparable size. So I think mm -hmm. that maybe that... Uh, you know, that would be one reason why they would uh, claim that this had happened if it hadn't. Um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I feel like it hasn't been confirmed or denied either way uh, at present, unless you found something else. Uh, uh, it hasn't. And yeah, I mean, also Iranian news. I don't know for sure if this is true, but it really wouldn't surprise me that D'Andrea was like the person who directed the operation that killed Soleimani. So this would have been mm -hmm. kind of direct retaliation. But yeah, I found an Atlantic Council well, he article was, like, put in going off of, on like, this. You know, Iran policy, like when mm -hmm. Trump came Yeah, in, Trump brought know, him they in. Moved this yeah. guy, yeah, onto the, to head up their Iran policy. So, I mean, yeah, he would definitely be culpable uh, in a large way for that. So it would be definitely... Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It was written about in the New York Times in 2017. Um, 
you know, mentions that he's known as the Dark Prince or Ayatollah Mike. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, like uh, he killed thousands of people in the CIA's drone campaign. Was a real uh, pioneer of signature strikes where it's like, oh, this we're tracking this phone number. We think it's connected to a terrorist. Let's blow it up. And uh, yeah, you know, he did a lot. So then Trump brought him in, this liberal hero, this woke CIA badass who, you know, uh, was a Muslim, but also, you know, uh, killed Osama bin Laden. Uh, the orange man brought him in as pinch hitter to uh, conduct his like Peter Schweizer esque yeah, like, ma- na- maximum like pressure woke? campaign. I mean, I, I mean, like, is it? Like, I guess it's woke to kill bin Laden because Obama, like, was president at the time. But, like, it, it's just the idea, like, oh, he's Muslim. It's, like, so absurd. Like, sorry. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, no, like, it was. It on. was. Like, that, that, and that's how the like, movie portrayed oh, it. It's well, like, whoa. Uh, so ooh, lame. So complex. Yeah, like, stupid. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, like, yeah. He's also, it, it is funny because, you know, he's now credited as the New York Times said, perhaps no single CIA official is more responsible for weakening al-Qaeda, but also uh, he was reportedly one of the CIA officials who, I'm going to put heavy air quotes on this, failed to track one of the 9-11 hijackers, Nawaf al-Hamzi, and then, of course, like threw himself into the uh, enhanced interrogation program right after 9-11. His team oversaw the interrogations of Abu Zubaydah, Abdul Rahim Nal-Nashiri and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. I think we brought up Abu Zubaydah before, and uh, that is interesting. I always thought that was interesting because it's like the very people like um, Alfreda Bukowski and this asshole who did things that like like made pretty big kind of unforced errors that led to the government not catching the 9-11 hijackers immediately are put in charge of going and like kidnapping and torturing these high-level al-qaeda people and from what it sounds like basically just torturing the hell out of them breaking them down psychologically and then producing god knows what in terms of intelligence so let me i'm just saying you know let me be a little critical paranoid here if you were involved in the thing whether you wanted 9-11 to happen or not if you were from a position of i fucked up in a huge way and my career could be maybe over or something like that or if it comes out like the systemic level of negligence that the u.s government engaged in to like let 9-11 happen and now you have basically authorization to do whatever crazy torture techniques that you know you basically have in the toolkit and it's totally gloves off like would you be torturing those people to get the truth or would you be uh maybe torturing them until they provide a truth that you find suitable yeah right like it's basically yeah. forcing a narrative because then you know we have to think about like the compartmentalization of the government and everything it's not like everybody's just sitting around like yeah like we made 9-11 happen good you know there's a lot of people that are like normies basically that like need to be given sort of cooked up information to justify whatever it is they want to do so it would be like all right abu zubaydah like we're gonna lock you in this box we're gonna blast the barney song 24 hours a day we're maybe gonna try to hypnotize you we're gonna we're gonna you know check (laughs) you with sodium pentothal whatever the fuck we want to do every mk ultra phoenix program thing we could ever think of we're gonna do it to you until you give us the story that we want you to give us and that is when the torture will stop because there is a kind of false thing sometimes with torture that 
was very popular in the 2000s and the 2010s with like liberals when they were criticizing in the media, in the like, media yeah. and, and, and just liberal politicians and stuff is they would always bring up this is the ultimate way to like own the, the Cheneyites uh, and the neocons would say well actually if you torture somebody uh, the information you get is very inaccurate because when somebody is being yeah. tortured they'll tell you whatever you want to make the torture stop and of course that's true but I feel like they, they drew the wrong inference from that they should have focused more on the they'll like, tell oh, you they whatever you want to hear yeah exactly like, like no uh, shit that's yeah. that's the point that's why they're torturing them is because like if they're not torturing them they might just say nothing or just be like i don't know what you're talking about like you know give me my lawyer and they had to make mm -hmm. it clear like no 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 there's no lawyers here we're gonna torture you and we're gonna like break down you know whatever submission for whatever reason whether you did 9-11 or not we're gonna torture you until you say the thing we want you to say and then that's going to go in the records and the intelligence reports and all the politicians and the bureaucrats are going to read that. And then that's going to convince them. So it's like this is a potentially, you know, this is an important link in the chain of like evidence to basically manufacture to get the whole war on terror thing rolling. And this guy was basically in charge of all of it. And yeah, I, the fact that he too, just like Alfredo Bukowski, totally messed up. And was like, oops, like, oh, man, oh, just, like, didn't track this, uh, you know, hijacker that was uh, getting checks from Prince Bandar's wife. Uh, you know, oops. Um, like and you know, a, a history of, of messing up, like, uh, too, you know, just uh, reading about some of his stuff. Apparently, he, uh, he was at the helm of uh, the CIA's, uh, you know, counter he was a counterterrorism chief. You know, yeah, he CTC. did a lot, as we mentioned, you know, or as you mentioned, to, uh, like, escalate the drone war and everything. But, uh, you know, he also oversaw, like, the deadliest attack on CIA personnel in more than a quarter century uh, mm -hmm. when a source who was secretly working for Al-Qaeda blew himself up at an American base in Afghanistan. That was, of course, dramatized uh, uh, in Zero Dark Thirty. It was a big source of consternation oh, no. and, and frustration. No. The poor, yeah, uh, the, pain the poor the heroes poor. were almost. Uh, they almost just, uh, you know, brought them home and said, "Don't look uh, for Bin Laden anymore, because you guys, somebody died, and we're all gonna blame you, and it's not fair." But we're doing wow. that. Yeah, yeah, very uh, moving. Kind of. I just remember the Oscars that year was like literally like a fucking CIA like pageant. Uh, yeah. You know, like yeah. A, a, a just, yeah. Um, I think that was a big coming out side. moment. Not to say the CIA wasn't deeply involved in Hollywood before that, but that was a real coming out party for the CIA. And you saw, like, not long after that, you saw Homeland, which uh, I, I we forgot to mention. I think the last time we brought it Homeland up, Homeland is uh, another like white, like the mystique of the white Muslim. You yes, know, like just and also let, let, also yeah, like the, the really important thing about Homeland. It's an Israeli show originally. It was brought over here. It was adapted yeah, right. from an Israeli and it show. Makes so a bit more sense in that context, but it does. whatever. Uh, yeah, know, yeah, but you know, into American uh, fantasias and ideas as well. Well, exactly. Uh, anyway. And while it had a very almost like scandal esque. Uh, first couple seasons that i think really wrote mm -hmm. people in with like the the sexy drama of you know mm -hmm. carrie like uh, is the most interesting part yeah but once they had iran like absurdly execute brody sorry spoiler alert in season three that show kind of overhauled it yeah uh, right um brody uh <laughs> yeah Mu Mu a true comrade Mujahid, congressman yeah uh, sergeant brody 
Uh, Almost detonated the vest in like the presence of Cheney, but didn't. Uh, unfortunately, should have done but, it. Uh, uh, yes. No, but uh, like, the but after got from the terrorist operative like in Gettysburg, uh, that's kind of like uh-huh. Timothy McVeigh going out to do his gun deal outside Area Fifty One, like getting. <laughs> uh, yeah. But anyway, yeah, made for TV. Um, but but yeah. yeah, but I think after like um, maybe season three of that show, probably around like 2013, 2014, especially when like the Syria and ISIS thing kicked up, that that show basically overhauled itself into basically just being like a CIA propaganda hour that was and they, i remember there were all these reports like they didn't even have to hide it anymore basically it's like the producers and the writers of and and uh and claire danes uh were basically kind of boasting about how cool it was that, like the cia invited them to langley and they got to meet with like real cia officers in the, in the counterterrorism center who let them know like yeah. what the what the, what the real threats were that were going on like what what keeps them up at night you know and then of course it's <laughs> like oh um, yeah and i'm sure they told you i'm sure they told you exactly what they yeah. want you to think that is like super important and you know you could just feel that like devil's bargain being struck and that show just like really not that it was like oh it was like amazing like before but it really degenerated into just this like ridiculous like like tom clancy for libs basically okay yeah it was and that was a time when yeah like and we're we're rapidly being sucked back into it like the zero dark 30 era of like Mm -hmm. you know base cia i mean it really never went away but like there was maybe like a sense of uh, vigilance like on the part of like the libs uh but they really like have gone back to brunch with mm-hmm. an aggressiveness that like defies comprehension uh and, i like, think a lot they, of liberals like the a drone deep program psychological need yeah exactly they have a deep psychological need to like love this it just has caused them like itchiness in their heads for like you know a whole four years and like now they're like really needing to go back to just like loving the cia and like trusting everything that like you know the base invisible president does uh yeah oh, you know, uh, yeah and, uh the glorious uh <laughs> military national complex under his uh steady hand mm-hmm, exactly yeah, and you know all it's, it's like all really the same steady hand, but all the same people uh, that were torturing yeah. people and droning people and like failing to prevent 9-11 are now like senior level officials at the cia and they yeah. persist like between between democratic and republican even through you know the drumpf man they were this guy was getting promoted because it's like he's a bloodthirsty killer and you know shares uh the desire to like you know destroy iran and uh he joined in 1979 so this must be he joined the cia in 1979 so this must be very like foundational to his uh kind of cia career and how he sees himself is like i think he also assassinated a hezbollah leader in damascus in maybe like 2004 so he's got a uh yeah imad mugnia in damascus so he's got a long-running beef kind of with uh with uh hezbollah and iran and stuff like that so he's you know a piece of shit and um it's interesting that iran used a like screen capture from zero dark 30 in claiming uh that they had killed this guy uh really? they're like we killed al telemoke and they used the, yeah they used a picture of uh frederick len or the, what, the guy who played you know the wolf oh. uh <laughs> you know yeah, they yeah, have pictures I mean, of to him be now, fair, but... he does look the part of like a menacing cia agent much better than the actual ayatollah mike uh mm-hmm. who's like a yeah. paunchy like you know nerd you don't like you know he doesn't look like a, a worthy 
adversary for like the Islamic Republic uh, much more than you know the actual Ayatollah. Like he he has the sort of masculinity of of Soleimani. You know, like you wouldn't want to think that this was the guy who killed Soleimani, you know, if you see the real Ayatollah Mike, uh, you know, Soleimani being like a very virile figure, uh, it fits much better if the, the movie version of him, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. I assume he's alive, unfortunately. Um, um, yeah, he may well be alive. Um, I think there was a plane that crashed. Uh, I don't know if, as initially claimed, the Taliban shot it down or if it was just, like, a mechanical failure or the CIA was, like, wiping out some of its own assets. Um, but I guess apparently Voice of America, I think, said four or five people died in, in the small plane crash, but they won't say anything about Michael D'Andrea and... Yeah, I don't know. We'll keep yeah, an eye out for him. It's interestingly convenient that, like, his identity was, like, a whole secret, and now, like, it's come out, but now he's, like, ambiguously dead, and, like, no one will confirm or deny. It's kind of, like, convenient in a way. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yes. exactly. And um, he also, uh, the the last last thing I just want to say is, like, I noticed that he, I think he, he got some criticism, well, I guess, as the founder of the CIA drone program, he was probably responsible for killing a number of american citizens who had you know either joined al-qaeda or in the case of uh abdurrahman al-awlaki just happened to be the son of a probably a cia asset that they wanted to get rid of Mm -hmm. um and so they killed him with a drone in yemen um when he was like i think 15 that was a one of the greatest hits from the Obama era. Um, but one of the other people that he killed in um, 2015 in Waziristan that he was, I guess, very adamant about hunting down. I didn't know about this guy, but he fits a certain pattern. This is um, Adam Gadon, born Adam Perlman in Oregon in 1978, who was an American senior operative, cultural interpreter, spokesman, and media advisor for Al-Qaeda. Uh, I guess he showed up in 2004 in a bunch of Al-Qaeda videos as Azam the American, or Al-Amriki. He, uh, he grew up in, Cal- in Southern California, and uh, what I didn't know about him is that he moved to, of course, he grew up, his dad, his grandfather was a prominent Jewish activist and on the board of directors of the Anti-Defamation League, and... His father was uh, Philip, a musician who grew up in Orange County. Get some pension vibes here. He, uh, his father was involved in the counterculture movement at UC Irvine, uh, and before Adam's birth, converted to Christianity. I guess then he was raised as a Protestant. Uh, as a, as an adolescent, he became obsessed with death metal. Uh, and alternative yeah. magazines. He contributed to a, a music zine called Xenocide uh, in, 19, wow. in the early 1990s. Uh, wow, uh, that's, I yeah. guess, a reference to Ender's Game. Uh, maybe, yeah. maybe. Um, uh, must be, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. So then he did He did convert to Islam in uh, 1995 uh, after going to the Islamic Society of Orange County. And I guess it, it says here that members of Gadan's study group were young fundamentalists who, quote, targeted the mosque's chairman, Haitham Boondakji, for his practice of, quote, wearing Western clothes and being friendly with Jews. Okay, that's weird. Like, why were there, like, young fundamentalists in Orange County at this Islamic society? That seemed, like, who, like, but, like, the imam was, like, liberal. Like, you know, this is a little odd. Um, um, yeah, well, eh, Like, you would, ass- you, wouldn't you expect, but... like, I guess maybe, maybe if they're, I don't know, immigrants or something, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a... Just seems a little 
mismatched. Like, wouldn't they? Yeah, but you know, the the, usually the the pa- usually the head of any congregation way. is like more of a traditionalist well, the, than like the kids. He's not necessarily the imam. He's and I guess like, you're you right. Know, yeah, he's the chairman of the board. So like mm, you know, okay. and you know, a lot of the time like young people like have different like sources of information. So yeah, true, but true. It's possible yeah. there wasn't like you know a uh, yeah. Um, he also he got arrested like, yeah. Gadan got arrested for assaulting that guy in 1997 Haitham Bundakji and I guess uh, he served two days in jail and then he and then mentor. a year l- mm, wow what's that yeah his former mentor yeah, yeah exactly he lashed out at him and then failed to perform community service and so had a warrant out on him and then he moved to pakistan in 1988 where he married an afghan re- refugee and uh then cut off contact with his family in march 2001 he told his parents he'd been working as a journalist in pakistan he's very um, similar to john walker land actually yeah this is basically like another john walker land yeah uh, so so yeah. listen to this because this is this is interesting in a short period of time Gadan became a senior advisor to bin Laden and was assumed to be playing the role of translator, video producer, and cultural interpreter. Gadan declared his animosity towards the U.S. by declaring it enemy soil and praising the individuals responsible for the 9-11 attacks. The first production of al-Qaeda's media division, As-Sahab, was believed to have been in 2001 with the involvement of Gadan. He, so he was like the auteur of those famous like Osama bin Laden communique kind of videos. And I don't know, maybe even the, you know, that scary, like training camp footage of them like climbing on monkey bars that everyone <laughs> used like to this day like i wonder if he shot that as well and uh, it's just yeah, it, apparently his death was like confirmed partially by like the huge decline in video quality uh that happened uh yes after. or i think they say that yeah. his um I, I think they say that like he was he became involved in other tasks and like the video quality dropped sharply because he didn't die until 2015 but this is around the time of 9-11 where he was producing all these videos. I don't know where. Um, I guess he was yeah. hiding out in Pakistan and like Waziristan. Oh, yeah. No, there was a rumor of his death earlier. And there was a huge yeah, drop in video quality. And that's why people, I guess, had thought that it was that he had died. I see. Yeah. 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 But he, but he, he kept producing. Uh-huh. Yeah, he kept uh, producing videos like through the Obama area Um and interestingly, in March 2014, an unpublished video was leaked by ISIS that showed Gadan condemning ISIS and calling them extremists. Hmm. But he also praised the Fort Hood shooter. Um, <laughs> so in 2010, so he was like supportive of terrorism. But then I don't know. There was a real there was like a weird turf war with ISIS and Al Qaeda where I feel like, you know, the yeah, cyclo himself, like Zawahiri, like condemned them. And they were like, fuck off. We have our own caliph now. Yeah, his death was rumored a number of times. But then finally, in April 2015, um, and, you know, that same drone strike happened to kill hostage aid workers Giovanni Laporto and Warren Weinstein, right, yeah. who were collateral that was damage. another uh, blunder mentioned by, uh, mentioned about Mike Andrea, that he, you know, had been uh, sort of uh, overseeing the counterterrorism. Uh, yeah yeah exactly when that, when that happened yeah 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 uh, and, and that that just that whole thing kind of jumped out at me because i remember reading an article it might have been in some mainstream thing like the atlantic from a couple years ago which i always meant to go and i feel follow like up this guy on. is like a graham wood like article waiting to happen where it's like he is he, was he a is genius. Well, like he you know was the it, it might have been in the same ever. publication he was white and yet he became muslim and he studied the true most authentic muslim philosophy and realized the one fundamental truth of all Islam that you must kill 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 but I think what yeah what's 
what's interesting is that there were a few Americans who went and joined ISIS, and uh, it's escaping me right now that article. But there was an American. I feel like who grew that up in might Boston. have been a Graham Wood article that you're thinking of. It might have been. Uh, it might have literally been. Yeah. yeah. But basically, there it was like the same exact story of like an American who grew up in Boston, and somehow he might have gone to like film school for a while or he like studied film, but then when he went over to Syria and joined ISIS, he quickly became like he wrote through the ranks immediately and became like the producer and kind of director and main auteur of their very flashy sort of snuff film propaganda videos and that always jumped out at me is like because i always thought there was something just a little bit too slick about their video productions and then the explanation is oh yeah they had like an america young american who went over there and joined yeah. them and then directed mm -hmm. everything it's like what you know and then there was a kid from texas who was the son of a retired I think an army colonel who grew up in Richardson, Texas, very spooked out kind of military industrial complex suburb. And same thing, just like kind of apropos of nothing, got really not just converted to Islam, but like converted to kind of ISIS style, you know, stuff and then pieced out. And I think he bounced around to a bunch of different countries, but then he became almost like like some people described him as like one of the main theological authorities in yeah, ISIS. Right. And it's like this like thirty uh, there's like thirty-three year old American guy. And it's like what the what whole is going idea on? That here? ISIS even had like any theological authorities is absurd. I feel like that's a Graham Wood thing where it's like yeah. this is like the true theological meditation, like of the, you know, uh yeah, like there's not like, you know, the whole idea that like Al Baghdadi was like a an Islamic scholar. Like, okay, well, where's his dissertation? Like, that's a lot. No, like, he's, I he's think not an Islamic scholar. Yeah, like I, I'm going um, with the the Sergeant Gregory Ford exposition. I'd love to get him on the podcast one day because uh, he went on a few radio shows like years ago. But that's the guy that claims that like a that he found like a bunch of Carlisle group like nuclear bomb triggers in in Iraq and then like uh tried to tell his superiors about it and then they like they like MK'd him and like strapped him to a gurney and injected him with sodium pentothal and like flew him out of the country um, but the <laughs> other thing he mentioned because wow, he was so giving he interviews found, uh WMDs but they didn't well yeah but they were sold by the, by the Reagan Bush administration <laughs> so like uh, uh, you yeah, know what I, I mean guess, it's yeah. like that they did have like a part of like a nuclear detonator but like it had been given to them by George Bush so it was like ugh, mm. awkward um but like the other thing he threw in there because it was around the time ISIS was like rampaging around was that when he was stationed in Samara he ended up making contact with like the uh I think it was the the Mukar Barat uh like you know Saddam's intelligence service with the station chief of Samara who was Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi at the time and that I think mm. I can't remember if he said that his cover was being an imam at like the local mosque there or something, but he was actually just a case officer who, you know, was in charge of that district. And then, you know, I think it, it gets a little it doesn't tell the whole story. But when people describe ISIS as kind of like this kind of cynical alliance of like former Baathist like intelligence and military officers that maybe like teamed up with some local elements and got some foreign support and then you know used like this kind of religious thing just as like a brand kind of like a radical sunni brand but none of them were actually really religious i'm i remain very intrigued by that yeah i certainly testimony. think that like the you know and i'm not saying that like none of them were really religious or like isis isn't islamic or whatever like you know it 
is neither here nor there and like ultimately at the end of the day like if you're ascribing islam to yourself like that's sufficient and like if you affirm the shahada and etc cetera, etc cetera, like you count as being muslim you might still be like a sociopath like a terrorist and like you might very well like go to hell uh because like you're not upholding like the spirit like of the law but as, as far as it goes like of being like trying to litigate you know uh, whether this is like an Islamic group or not, like I don't think that's interesting. But uh, it's not like you know the thing that really bothered me like around the ISIS discourse uh, is like the idea that this is some kind of like sophisticated theological product of like genuine meditation upon like Islamic texts like led by a scholar and that like you know there are these brilliant American kids who are like you know geniuses of the Arabic language like going out there because they were <laughs> just drawn in by like this perfect realization yeah. of like yeah, islamic no. philosophy it's like just so insulting and it just shows yes. like how these people don't know anything yeah like yeah and it's it's the same type of thing where there's like this mystique around like ayatollah mike it's very similar where it's like oh you know like basically this over romanticization and like this mystification of islam mm -hmm. where it's like inconceivable that like someone is like how could they be muslim but then like be you know it's this like yeah no we, we talked like, about that you know, like, with like hypnosis and stuff like how could anybody be a communist you know? how could anybody be muslim without they must be hypnotized or something they must have been brainwashed like it, it's it's so yeah or like that, yeah or like you know islam is like equivalent to terrorism like in some way so therefore it's like so impressive and like you know that someone would be muslim but then also like be fighting terrorism and yeah exactly like how could someone who was white like you know who wasn't muslim to begin with possibly like find this appealing there like must be something very mysterious and mystical going on like in the mind of this great like sun Tzu warrior where he can yeah. like understand the terrorist mentality like but he uses it for good or whatever you know or there, like, there's uh, even kind of like a my, he is truly the wolf or whatever yeah you know? well like there's some, there's yeah. almost like a, like a colonel kurtz kind of aspect to it of like he's gone fully native like he understands them yeah, better than exactly. anybody else he's even become yeah. one of them mm -hmm. you know he's taken the yeah. shahada you know and now yeah right yeah right yeah uh -huh. yeah 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 um, so you know it's right. like it's so like that kind of thing of like, like their warrior ways against them yeah it's mm -hmm, like uh mm -hmm. in stargate sg1 where they have the one guy who's like you know got his voice like audio doubled over and he's like oh, i am one of the aliens but i will help you like you know or whatever or like uh <laughs> yeah it's like yeah, just yeah. like so fucking yeah i know, um, I know. I that's think what we make of that i guess i'm um, not really sure but we got our eye on him so okay all last right. question last question we're doing all right yeah here last question time. reasonable okay. time yeah yeah all right. might be a bit late a young howler ass might be a bit late with this one well not not no not too late yeah, uh we're it. getting it in uh, but I was hoping you might be able to delve into the ontological slash metaphysical implications of the development and deployment of the atomic bomb. This is something that's really fascinated me in the works of Pynchon and Don DeLillo, and the exploration of this theme was also what I appreciated the most in Twin Peaks The Return. Uh, we just recently discussed this. Uh, I guess Dimitri was not as impressed, but uh, looking forward to your Sus David Lynch episode <laughs> of BTW. And I'm uh, in the beginning stages of writing a research paper on the subject, also Hegel, and would appreciate your guys' perspectives slash input slash considerations. Well, one thing I'd recommend that comes to mind is uh, Derrida's lecture, uh, No Apocalypse, Not Now, uh, which I think actually even mentions Hegel uh, and uh, deals with the uh, implications, uh, certain, definitely like metaphysically and ontologically of like the nuclear deterrence and talks about uh, I'll see if I can bring it up, but the contemplation of nuclear annihilation as like a theme in 
kind of the ideascape of the time, which I think was, uh, you know, around the late 20th century, maybe the 90s. Uh, I'll have to look it up. But yeah, I mean, in general, the development and the deployment of the atomic bomb goes hand in hand with scientific revelations around like the idea of the atom and protons and electrons and all these theories you know which weren't really like observable per se at the time as far as i know like again not a physicist Mm -hmm. not a stem person but it is like a big thing where like the necessity of having this weapon was something that kind of pushed these theories and these frameworks of the makeup of the universe and uh you know based on the atom to the forefront uh, and, you know, cause them to become debated in a big way. I think at the time the atomic bomb was detonated, like the idea of like electrons, protons, neutrons, all these things to take for granted and like learn about in, in high school science class, like were not really, you know, uh, confirmed, you know, they were still mm-hmm. disputed. Um, so the idea of this, like of atomism, uh, which, you know, is a whole philosophical movement with a long lineage. You know, you can even talk about uh, Al-Ashari and uh, people like that, or even atomism uh, in the sense of Ibn Sina, you know, like uh, people like that, uh, or uh, Epicurus, I think, would be uh, a very cla- a good classical proponent of it, and Lucretius on, on the Roman side. That might be something interesting to look into, like in terms of the history of the idea of of the atom uh i don't Mm. know like much about like your paper but i feel like it might be more about like the sociological aspects of like nuclear deterrence and the idea of you know in which case i would definitely recommend derrida's essay i'll try to look it up right now but uh you know uh i don't know if you were going to say anything on that dimitri i mean it it's it's a real dense topic i yeah i don't know if i have anything too specific it is something that's fascinating and i'd like to read more about i don't know just on a really basic level you know the most famous quote about detonating the atomic bomb from uh j robert oppenheimer always just like jumped out at me as kind of just like a terrifying quote like you know i am become death destroyer yeah, of the worlds and... yeah yeah and yeah he, uh on, on the kind of ancient aliens tip didn't he also have some weird quote where like uh you know he said like yeah this is the first nuclear detonation like in modern times or whatever which people sometimes point to as like implying that you know in those classical hindu texts some of those according to this this article you know robert oppenheimer uh, medium you know robert Mm -hmm. oppenheimer the renowned theoretical physicist and mentor to countless Nobel laureates was asked if trinity was the first ever bomb of such a type to be detonated he replied yes in modern times Mm. Uh, Add to this what Oppenheimer yeah. quoted from the Bhagavad Gita and as clear as day, uh, you know, so I assume they go on to talk about how like the sort of destructive uh, potencies and, and techniques used in, in that described to the gods and such were nuclear weapons, you know, kind of on the ancient astronauts tip. I'm trying to look up if that's a that's a real quote, but I don't know how useful uh, that will be. But yeah, I would definitely look up No Apocalypse Not Now because I feel like that is, you know, I'm looking at it. Uh, right now i guess this was uh 1984 summer 1984 and there was a uh i guess a, a conference uh convened on the topics of like nuclear criticism uh mm-hmm. it was published in diacritics volume 14 number two uh nuclear criticism summer 1984 by the john hopkins university press and jacques derrida has an article in there you know it's very very deridian hitting his old like uh bugbears you know let me think of what's a good taste maybe uh to give of this for you know the listeners who might not eventually uh go and uh go uh hunt it down uh although i would recommend uh that young howler at least uh do so a little bit because i think he does uh 
even mention mention Hegel in this. Total and remainderless destruction of the archive. Yes, uh, an absolute missile does not abolish chance. Hegel, on one hand, sets forth the implicit consequence of Kantian criticism and recalls or postulates that one must begin explicitly with a thought about the infinite, of which Kantian criticism has indeed uh, had to begin implicitly. On the other hand, defines access to the life of the mind and to consciousness by the passage through death or the risk of biological, let us say natural death, through war and the struggle for recognition. He still has to hold on to that remainder of natural life, which, in symbolization, makes it possible to capitalize, open parentheses, on, close parentheses, what is gained from the risk, from war, and from death itself. As individual or community, the master has to survive in order to enjoy the symbolic profit, open parentheses, in mind and in consciousness, close parentheses, from death, risks, or endured. He takes risks and he dies in the name of something, which is worth more than life, but something which will still be able to bear his name in life and a residue of living support. This is what made Bataille laugh. The master has to live on in order to cash in on and enjoy the benefits of the death, ri of the death risk he has risked. Uh, yeah, and he quotes like the idea of better dead than red. Uh, he says, uh, Today, in the perspective of a remainderless destruction without mourning and without symbolicity, those who contemplate launching such a catastrophe do so no doubt in the name of what is worth more in their eyes than life, better dead than red. On the other hand, those who want nothing to do with that catastrophe are ready to prefer any sort of life at all, life above all, as the only value worthy to be affirmed. But nuclear war, as a hypothesis, a phantasm of total self-destruction, can only come about in the name of that which is worth more than life, that which, giving its value to life, has greater value than life, and thus it is waged in the name of ellipsis, that in any case is the story that the war makers always tell. But it is uh, in the name of something whose name and this logic of total destruction can no longer be born, transmitted, inherited by anything living. That name and the name of which war would take place would be the name of nothing. It would be pure name, the naked name. That war would be the first and the last war in the name of the name, with only the non-name of, quote, name. It would be a war without a name, a nameless war, for it would no longer share even the name of war with the other events of the same type or the same family. Beyond all genealogy, a nameless war in the name of the name. That would be the end and the revelation of the name itself, the apocalypse of the name. I'm like Ooh. cracking myself up with this. Uh, <laughs> you know, you might find something of, of, of use here. You know, I love the, uh, the sentence of just repeating the word name like endlessly. When you read this out loud, you really get like, you know, people don't treat it this way, but he's a comedian, you know, and uh, especially mm -hmm. with all the, you know, discussion of Foucault this week you know oh, yeah. like yeah. i think uh foucault uh as like a philosopher and a thinker you know uh is is much meatier than than derrida but you know maybe derrida is a better guy at the end of the day you know uh, uh i don't know because uh derrida also signed that petition to abolish age of consent laws in france in the late 70s i'm not really sure i couldn't read like the times article like uh, those paywalls out of it so i couldn't read like, if there was new information but Derrida, as far as we know, didn't like, you know, uh, like rape a bunch of like Tunisian boys uh, and while well, he had AIDS, uh, as far as we know. Uh, that's just a, an interesting case, uh, you know, very, I think, very relevant to uh, some of our topics on the podcast. Uh, so I recommend mm -hmm. that that essay as something, uh, you know, and maybe I would look also into 
some of the like uh, debates around the scientific side, you know, around uh, the actual theories of atomism, or maybe even the deeper history of that. But I really don't know. It mm-hmm. depends on the nature of your paper. But uh, anyway, yeah. So yeah. we yeah. can wrap up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 And I feel uh, like I I recall ranting about David Lynch maybe in the last episode or two that we did about. I think I might have even specifically yeah. brought up his montage of the nuclear bombs with yes, Threnody for the victims uh, of yeah, Hiroshima. His use of the, right. Yeah. Yes, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, just the most basic music selection of all time, like the most obvious, basic, like, look at me, look how sophisticated I am uh, kind of thing. I do think, sure, there is something interesting about tying whatever the phenomena in Twin Peaks is with basically that, you know, the the first nuclear bomb detonations like open some kind of interdimensional portal that like maniacal gin like bob uh came through and have been terrorizing our world sure that's an interesting idea uh the the really ultra spooky because you know the i think the very first atomic research did happen in germany in the late 1930s and so mm-hmm. It did come from Nazi Germany, and it is chilling to think of, like, what the Nazis would have done if they had gotten those bombs first, because it would have maybe been the only thing that would have kept them from losing. You know, nothing else is going to stop the Red Army, but if they started doing that, who the hell knows? And Uh with the kind of interests of people like Hitler and Himmler— you know, uh, being obsessed with like raising tool or something again, you know, I, I would not be super shocked if, you know, they maybe dreamed of, you know, building this like a Wunderweppen or whatever, um, that would open up like the portals and let like, I don't know, a bunch of Aryan gin like come through or anything. I, I don't really know. I don't know if the Ananerba yeah. was really like on that tip, but Eh, interesting concept but the actual like execution i kind of stopped watching the new twin peaks after that because it was just a little bit it, it had been getting yeah. on my nerves up to that point and it was just like okay you're gonna add this well like i said i don't really even like the original twin peaks so i couldn't get mm. up the enthusiasm to start watching that maybe i will eventually but i don't know yeah there was yeah. still like 13 hours uh, left when i think when the nuclear bomb stuff happened it was like okay like maybe he goes out maybe he builds on that theme or something uh and they they explore mm-hmm. it more but uh he i think his brain has just been turned to like sus mush by tm and like everybody just kissing <laughs> his ass and like telling him how much of a genius he is and he's just coasting and like uh yeah <laughs> that's pretty much um my idea about that i don't know really what yeah. what we can really glean out of like david lynch's uh if there's any wisdom to be gleaned rather from uh that connection maybe he has he maybe he's a guy who has like some good instincts and stuff but he's like so obsessed with like the instinctual and things that are like not thought out but just like he's he's just drawn to them you know and he just like follows wherever his his soul goes you know and it's just so weird you know like that whole thing okay that's one approach to like making movies but also it makes me roll my eyes a little bit yeah, it's not, I mean, it's really not, like, that uh, great of an insight. I mean, that's kind of, like, you know, uh, in all, like, UFO theories or whatever, it's always, like, oh, you know, we didn't need a nuclear bomb, and that's why now these UFOs care about us, and that's why mm-hmm. people see the aliens were watching us from space or whatever, and they saw this, you know, so 
it's kind of just a, a permutation of a very familiar thing. This was like a, a you know huge inflection point in history where it became possible, you know, to like you know like uh, as Derrida was talking about, you know, this imagination of this total war that would be infinite in some way and just would you know annihilate everything and would mm -hmm. you know be even indescribable by the name war because it would destroy like yeah. you know uh civilization completely but it's like humanity know, I, like yeah. like finally attaining the powers of maybe not god himself but like the powers of a god as we would have conceived them yeah. throughout most of human history and we now had the well, idea the, the power to exterminate ourselves which is an awesome and terrifying power to have yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I was just going to mention, I remember listening to, uh, you know, the official Temple of Set podcast, uh, <laughs> KPHR or whatever, you know, yeah, like, uh, or KHPR, yeah, Keffer, uh, you know, um, and uh, Aquino, you know, did a guest spot on the on the podcast, obviously, you know, you got to have him come on. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said something like, you know, to, well, to blaspheme God, the purest act of blaspheming God would be to detonate an atomic bomb, you know, because God represents like, you know, the harmonious laws of nature and everything, you know, so splitting the atom and detonating the bomb, you know, that's like the purest act of blasphemy against God. Wow. Uh, so, that is interesting. Yeah. Cause I think he wrote his grad school thesis on the neutron bomb in like 1979. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'm sure he, I mean the, yeah. Yeah, the standard theory around, like, the Nazis uh, and nuclear weapons, I feel like, is, you know, uh, that basically, like, by politicizing the education system and, like, staffing everything with, like, freaks like Heidegger or Conrad Lorenz <laughs> who are, like, willing to go along with it, they, like, you know, kind of did a massive brain drain to themselves and, like, all the people who eventually were able to develop these weapons, like, left, like yeah. Albert Einstein and stuff. Yep. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, yeah, but... I don't know if there's maybe more to it than that or I don't know. I mean, but, J. Robert Oppenheimer yeah. for all of his like sus quoting the Bhagavad Gita um, was at least a fellow traveler of communists and eventually got his security clearance revoked and like kicked out of academia in the fifties, even though he, mm -hmm. and then he went to HUAC after that and named names of people he had worked with who were communists mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But nobody really looked at it as like he was snitching because he had already had his career destroyed. So, uh, and then he ended up working yeah. as like a high school physics teacher or something. So that's what happens if you're a communist. Uh, uh, once again, yeah. if you were a prominent communist in the forties and you didn't like uh, go before HUAC and say, please execute me here, are all my friends who are communists, then uh, yeah. that would happen I mean, to you. Mentioned in our recent Atlantis episode, uh, Welt Eisler, like uh, World Ice Theory, which mm. was like kind of what they generally preferred over other forms of cosmology, like those that were, you know, eventually the kind of the basis for these ideas, like uh, general relativity and all that stuff, like the Einstein, you know, the Copenhagen stuff, you know, uh, which, you know, I find to be a little, you know, I'm more of a Bohmian myself, you know, or <laughs> really, you know, uh, whatever Ibn al-Arabi says, I think is probably right. But so they, they were like, were operating from like Welt Eislech. So they couldn't mm -hmm. like, you know, they would just develop Atlantean technology or whatever, you know, it wouldn't be, mm -hmm. uh, the same. That's the what same they wanted. That's what they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, because the, it. you know, the Einstein cosmology or the, the quantum mechanics, you know, that was, that was Jewish, you know, Jewish so. lies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jewish, um, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. space world ice theory um yeah <laughs> yeah all right well um i think we can uh i think we can leave it there yeah 
This is a funny little quote. Uh, Heisenberg lectured his students at the theory of relativity, proposed to the Jewish scientist Albert Einstein in an editorial. Himmler called Heisenberg a white Jew who should be made to disappear. Wow, uh, okay. Hmm. All right. All right. So, uh, <laughs> On yeah, that so, note. Love well, our... but, you know, it's good they did that because otherwise then they might have had, like, nuclear scientists who could have uh, created a horrible nuclear bomb. Uh, you know, not that it's good that these weapons exist at all, but, yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, they kind of provoked us into creating it. So, and then yeah, we actually went and, and used them. So. And we hired them, yeah, to yeah. Uh, help us use them more. Yeah. Use them more, exactly. Uh, anyway. Get them yeah. faster uh, over to Russia. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, that's. Uh, yeah. All right. That's that's Q and A six. Yeah. Good questions once again. Thanks to the Grotto for. Yep. Looking forward know. to another month. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the unending jihad continues. Mm-hmm. Thinking next month, you know, we have some things in the docket. Uh, you know, I'm thinking maybe Dogman could happen. Uh, Dogman you know, could happen. Uh, sure, sure. We, yeah. we, I think we're ready for, I think Mothman was our last cryptid. So I think, yeah. Do- mm-hmm. I really yeah. don't know much about Dogman. So I'm curious to see what uh, we turn up. You're going to learn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. of course, our aforementioned Eagles uh, deep dive is, yeah. mm-hmm. it's coming. It's coming. So yeah. yeah. Uh, Cohen Brothers fans, uh, be warned. It's going to be a rough one for you. Mm. Uh, punk rockers, watch out. You know, deadheads. Uh, this is going to be a slightly upsetting episode. So Yeah. Is this um, going to be like a five-hour-long episode? Like, uh, that's like, are we going to have to do this over two nights again? Is this going to be like a seven-hour uh, thing? Like, no, no, no. no, no. Um, we'll keep it within, I, we'll keep it within uh, reasonable bounds. I mean, we're really just um, talking about like a decade yeah, of, I mean, of musical dominance yeah. here. Uh, so nothing too... Yeah, nothing too crazy. Uh, I will have to insist yeah, that you I, watch like the five-hour uh, Eagles documentary series, though. I will. I will watch it. Yeah, <laughs> it'll I'm explain not, like, everything. An expert on the Eagles, but uh, oh, you're about to be. Yeah, so maybe that will. Yeah, okay. I'm about to learn. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll need to really brush up uh, to. Yeah, and we'll probably read Don Felder's, uh, you know, autobiography where he dishes a lot of dirt right. about, you know, mm-hmm. after getting kicked out of the Eagles permanently. Um, you know, yeah. Don Finger, Don uh, Fingersfelder, uh, you know, probably has, might be able to shed a different light because, you know, the information we're really like breaking into like, you know, Fort Knox here in terms of like narrative control over the Eagles. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they, as famous as they are, they, uh, they, they don't like unauthorized, like, I don't know. They don't like figure it art about themselves uh, being displayed anywhere, like, um, or their music being used. We'll see if we get like a DCMA uh, request for using their daring to use their music in our episodes. Hopefully not. Um, um, that's uh, maybe that's another good hot take. You know, maybe uh, you know, maybe Taylor Swift is like the Eagles of today. You know, maybe like in retrospect, it's easy to defend like the Eagles, but you know, sometimes you can really go out on a limb. You know, she's well, popular. I, you know, she's I want you, I want you to, uh, to to keep that in mind as you you know watch a uh, uh, six hours of of Eagles uh, action that Eagles maybe content, you know yeah. yeah, there's there. I think there might be a through line to some stuff you care about. 
very deeply in yeah, today's musical possibly, scene. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Some people that are unfairly uh, maligned and persecuted despite yeah, their, you know, uh, wi- their excellent their, songwriting their, skills. Their general wild popularity, you know, people, uh, you know, say that they are shallow, you know, but in fact, mm-hmm. uh, great you know, haters going to hate, 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 hate. Uh, yeah, exactly. Just what yeah. they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You just got to shake it off and take it easy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. shake it off too. all right yeah so okay yeah to that. So. <laughs> um, yeah yeah and hopefully maybe, maybe another guest. guest or two yeah. uh yeah 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 might some more guests in the pipe yeah okay that'll, that'll be it for now and until next time dear listeners stay vigilant peace the eastern world it is exploding violence flaring bullets loading you're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating. But you tell me over and over and over again, my friend. I ah, you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. you understand what I'm trying to say? Can't you feel the fears I'm feeling today? If the button is pushed, there's no running away. There'll be no one to save. Will the world in a grave? Take a look around you, boy. It's bound to scare you, boy. And you tell me space.